Meeting of the Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We uh, welcome everybody here, and I know that uh, many of us had a chance to talk to some of those in the audience in the hallway, and we know that uh, while we've had great discussions, we know that you'll uh, honor the committee by uh, keeping comments uh, to yourself while we're proceeding. I want to thank everybody here on the committee for being here today, and I want to thank uh, our secretary uh, for his service. Um, I don't know of many secretaries of state that have put out as much effort in trying to solve the many problems that exist around the world, and for that, I thank him. Um, thank you for coming today, and I thank you for uh, typically when we have a budget hearing, uh, the testimony that is put forth is only about the budget, and I think you know, having been chairman of the committee, uh, you're probably not going to be asked many questions about the budget, and therefore, Therefore, uh, I think you gave a narrative of your view of the world, which I appreciate. I think all of us understand that the reason the State Department exists, really, and the reason that we fund it is to do everything we can through diplomacy to solve the many problems that exist around the world and to do everything we can to keep our men and women in uniform from being utilized uh, more than they are today because of uh, diplomacy. And so uh, that's why you're here, and I think that's one of the reasons you went into the narrative in your written testimony about uh, things happening around the world. So I just wanted to, uh, again, thank you, appreciate you being here, and uh, my opening comments are gonna center around then things happening around the world. We saw you in Munich last week. We had quite a candid conversation. I know you gave a talk there at the conference and I would, my observation is, and I know that uh, Senator Perdue was there and others, I don't think I've seen Europe so unsettled ever in my lifetime. I think their confidence level is at an all-time low. I think they are concerned about what Russia is doing to destabilize the area, using refugees as a weapon of war. Um, uh, I, again, I don't think I've seen that at that level before. And so, you know, they're looking for U.S. leadership, no question. In Syria, I know we had a very frank and off-the-record uh, discussion regarding uh, you had just entered into the agreement relative to cessation in Syria, and I know there were concerns at that time relative to what Russia would actually do, and I think we, many people thought they would do what they've done, and that is to further, further solidify gains, uh, kill more people, uh, move into Aleppo as they have. I know that you've negotiated another one. I realize that, again, what you have uh, at your disposal is negotiation, and I think that many of us have been asking, you know, what happens if, in fact, these, this ceasefire doesn't hold? And I don't think Russia believes that anything is going to happen, and I think that's why they continue to make the gains, and at some point they'll have all the gains they need and be willing for a cessation. Um, they're also uh, right now selling or announced that they're going to sell to Iran SU-30s, which is in strict violation of the UN Security Council agreement that put the JCPOA into place. Uh, it's my understanding that they can, in fact, come to the UN Security Council and ask for permission. I'd, lo I'd love to understand whether you expect that to happen. China today. Uh, 
is beginning to militarize, if you will, the, the gains they've made uh, in the South China Sea, building uh, very sophisticated radar facilities. We understand through announcements, don't have this verified, even are developing missile systems on these, uh, these quote, islands that are basically underwater at high tide, but now uh, being utilized in their regard. North Korea, we passed something here in the Senate and House last week, the President thankfully signed it to push back against them. I understand there were some peace overtures towards them prior to that occurring. I'd love, hope you'll expand a little bit about what that was about and where you see that going. And then in Libya, we've got 5,000 ISIS members there. Uh, I know we took some hits uh, against them again, in the outskirts of CERT last week. But I think many people had thought that maybe what the administration was going to do was going to assess a much greater effort there so that instead of it being incremental as it appears it might be, uh, there would be something done on a far more shock and awe basis to really set them back while we had the ability to do so. So I look forward to you talking about uh, and sharing with us uh, your thoughts on all of these issues. Again, I thank you for your narrative on the front end. I thank you for your service, and I certainly thank Senator Cardin for his distinguished uh, ranking member leadership on this committee, and we'll now turn to him. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you for convening this hearing, and it's always a pleasure to work with you. And Secretary Kerry, it's really a pleasure to have you uh, before your former committee. And I first start by acknowledging this is a uh, the last uh, budget that uh, President Obama's administration will be submitting to us. Uh, so I just really want to reflect for a moment on your extraordinary leadership in advancing uh, America's soft power through the effective use of diplomacy and development assistance. Uh, Secretary Kerry, you understand more than anyone else as the former chair of this committee, the importance of diplomacy and development assistance to our national security. And for that, uh, I just congratulate you on an incredible record of accomplishment as Secretary of State. You understand that military must be our last resort, and you have carried that out through developing partnerships with other countries and coalitions so that we can be effective with our soft power. And the most recent uh, is the hope that we have in Syria through the ceasefire to stop the killings and to allow humanitarian access, which is critically important first step to resolving the conflict within Syria so that we can focus on ISIL uh, without the fighting going on uh, between the Assad regime and the, the opposition. And you did it in a way that doesn't compromise our position in regards to President Assad's future and his accountability for uh, war crimes that he has committed. I also want to uh, thank you, your staff. They've been incredibly accessible to us in providing information that I think is vital to our needs. So to Julia Fryfield and the entire team, uh, thank you for what you've been able to do. I generally support the President's budget. I think it uh, speaks to the right priorities in regards to uh, the, the State Department. Uh, it deals with the threat emanating from ISIL uh, in the Middle East and Northern Africa, $4 billion to fight the counter violent extremism. Uh, it supports the rebalance to Asia and recognizes the challenges that we have in Asia relative to China's provocative actions in the South China Sea and North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Uh, I was pleased to see that the, we have enacted, uh, as the chairman pointed out, the uh, North Korea sanction bill. The president signed it into law. We're always stronger when the Congress and the administration work together to advance American foreign policy. 
the budget deals with challenges in our own hemisphere, uh, particularly mentioned the, the Central America Northern Triangle. We still have the problems of unaccompanied children coming to our borders. I was in uh, Honduras and El Salvador, saw firsthand the violence in the communities through the gang-controlled areas. Uh, we must do more in order to make that country safe. The President's uh, billion-dollar request, uh, I hope uh, we will uh, support that. Uh, dealing with uh, the good governance and protection of communities as well as the security issues in Central America. The budget deals with Russia's aggression in East and Central Europe, uh, particularly uh, support the $953 million to, to improve democracy and good governance and anti-corruption and promote European integration. I think that's critically important. Uh, it's the first year anniversary of the Minsk II agreement. We know Russia has not complied with the military aspects, but it's incumbent upon Ukraine to comply with the good governance aspects if there's going to be lasting peace in Ukraine. And this budget allows us to, to advance to those challenges. Uh, the budget provides for the continued support of Israel for its QME, $3.1 billion of security assistance, recognizing we are in a process of negotiating the next chapter in the Memorandum of Understanding. And it provides U.S. leadership on climate change. Uh, I was um, pleased uh, to be part of, of 10 uh, members who were in Paris for COP21. Uh, we saw uh, firsthand Americans' leadership, your leadership, in the international community coming together. Uh, this budget uh, carries out our commitments. I, I'm going to refer a couple times to uh, the visit under Codel Flake. We were just in the southern part of Africa, and we saw firsthand the impact of, of continued drought on the survivability of those countries in the southern part of Africa. Their way of life is at jeopardy today because we were there during the rainy season, we saw no rain. Uh, and this is the second year in a row that they have had uh, this, uh, this, this uh, uh, impact. And the New York Times today points out that uh, research teams report fastest sea rise in 28 centuries, 28 centuries. And the uh, budget does deal with carrying out our commitments on climate change so that we can uh, continue to uh, provide the leadership needed globally uh, to deal with this crisis uh, of our times. The budget deals with Africa, carrying out the Africa Leaders uh, Summit, uh, the commitments that were made there on Power Africa, Trade Africa, Young African Leadership Leaders. I think that's all very important. And it carries out our values from uh, providing international leadership on the refugees, humanitarian needs uh, that is global, to maternal and child health, to feed the future. Uh, it deals with the Zika virus in Latin America and deals with AIDS-free generation. Mr. Secretary, when we were in Namibia, we had a chance to visit an AIDS site and see firsthand, talk to Senator Coons and I had a chance to interview with about 30, 40 uh, AIDS uh, uh, patients. One asked that we relay to the leaders of our country their thanks, because literally they're alive today because of US efforts. There's a whole generation alive today, working in their economies and their future as a result of US leadership on PEPFAR. It makes a huge difference what we do on development assistance around the world. We now have a stable country, Namibia, uh, that wants to work with the United States uh, and it's a direct uh, result of our involvement. Uh, 
I, I want to um, also thank you for including $60 million for trafficking in, in humans. Uh, Senator Corker has been one of our great leaders on the trafficking issue to end modern day slavery. And uh, we appreciate the funds that are put in. Uh, so I'm, I'm positive on the budget that's been submitted, but I want to conclude on two points that I'm not as, as pleased about. First, there's not enough allocation and good governance and democracy in this budget. The small amount of monies that we put into democracy building, uh, we saw that in the four countries we visited, Mozambique, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Botswana, the small dollars that are available are having incredible results. Uh, it's what America stands for, and we need to do a better job in providing resources to promote democracy globally. And then secondly, I'm very concerned about the OCA funding versus the baseline funding. I think we need to talk about that. The budget provides for $50.1 billion in, uh, the, the, in allocation for foreign assistance, but only $35.2 billion is in baseline funding, as this chart points out. That's been a declining sum that's in the baseline. And the reality of our world is that this budget provides our national security. And it needs to be grounded and sustainable and ongoing for the safety of our nation. And I am concerned that by not having the baseline high enough, we run the risk in the future. Now, I know the realities of the politics of the budget here. This is not the administration's doing. But we need to make it clear that on national security, soft power, that we're committed not only to this year, but a sustained growth of America's presence globally. And I would hope that we would get a larger sum in the baseline. I look forward to your, question, uh, your comments, and I thank you again for your leadership. If I, uh, if I could, prior to you starting, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, uh, it's uh, the budget process on both sides of the aisle is nothing but a political document serves no purpose, and our inability to focus on our fiscal issues um, will weaken our nation while we're having this hearing. And uh, the fact that so much of it is funded through OCO, both, by the way, here and at DOD, um, just speaks to the fact that uh, we're not willing to make the tough decisions that are necessary to, on a permanent basis, put our country on solid footing. I know that's not, on this particular issue, that's not what the administration proposed, and I do appreciate you bringing that up. I would ask the audience, I know there was a, a degree of clapping and cheering. Um, again, we like the fact that everybody's here. I know you all be very respectful as the Secretary makes his comments, and if you will, please begin. Uh, well, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Senator Cardin, uh, all my former colleagues and friends on the committee, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I think we have a chance to have a very important uh, conversation. And I appreciate both of your opening comments very, very much, both in tone and tenor. Um, and uh, I want to begin just by thanking all of you. I know it's been very, very difficult. I know the committee has worked incredibly hard to fill our positions at the State Department. and our overseas posts. And I also know this committee has a very special appreciation for the vital work of diplomacy. Both of your comments just now underscore uh, how vital it is for America to have our uh, senior diplomats, particularly our career diplomats, who, who just don't deserve to be waiting a year or two years or a year and a half to be put in position. And um, I know this committee believes that, and, and you worked extremely hard, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your uh, diligence, and Senator Cardin, likewise, and all the members of the committee. This is the way we advance the objectives of U.S. policy, whether it's for our businesses that are trying to create jobs or 
travelers, Americans abroad. Um, so I thank you again uh, for uh, really pushing, obviously, complicated politics. And I ask your favorable and, and prompt effort on the other nominations. There's still some hanging out there, and particularly Roberta Jacobson, who is a professional civil servant uh, career, uh, has done a diligent job, uh, doesn't make the choices about the policy, and she shouldn't be the prisoner of those choices. She does what she's instructed to do, and she does it very, very well. So, Mr. Chairman, you have my prepared statement. I'm not going to give you a whole, you know, all of that, but I do want to uh, <clears throat> just some initial comments and summary. First, uh, you've mentioned the number, 50 billion, a little bit over. Uh, it's equal to about 1% of the entire budget of the United States. And that 1%, Mr. Chairman, I am just convinced more and more after these last years, even after serving on the committee, uh, is the minimum price of the leadership role that the United States of America plays on a global basis. Uh, and a particularly at a time when we are engaged diplomatically and more deeply in more places simultaneously on more significant issues simultaneously than at any time in our history. And the scope of that engagement, I am also convinced, is absolutely essential to protect the interests of our nation and to keep our citizens safe. And I think it's even growing more so with the numbers of failed and failing states where the governance money that Senator Cardin just referred to is so critical. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit uh, today. We are confronted today by perils that are as old as nationalist aggression and as new as cyber warfare, by dictators who run roughshod over global norms, and by violent extremists who combine modern media with medieval thinking to wage war on civilization itself. The last century was marked by state actors and states going to war with each other. World War I, II, Vietnam, Korea, so forth. This century is defined much more by non-state actors taking actions against states and against, as I said, the broad norms of society. And I would emphasize today in coming here, despite the dangers, despite the turmoil, we Americans have many reasons for confidence. In recent years, our economy has added more jobs than the rest of the industrialized world combined. Our armed forces are second to none. It's not even close. Our alliances in Europe and Asia are vigilant and strong. And our citizens are unmatched in the generosity of their commitment to humanitarian causes and civil society. We are the largest donor in the world to the crisis of Syrian refugees, over $5.1 billion. I see, we see, all of us, and hear a lot of hand-wringing nowadays. But I, for one, with all my affection and respect for all my colleagues around the world that I work with, I wouldn't switch places with foreign minister of any country. And nor do I yearn to retreat to some illusionary golden age of the past. Here and now, we have enormous opportunities, and we are trying to seize them. 
In the past year, we reached an historic multilateral accord with Iran that you all played a critical role in, and it has cut off that country's pathways to a nuclear weapon, thereby making the world safer for us and our allies. And if you doubt that, read the speech by General Ashkenaz, the head of the IDF forces of Israel, who recently at a security conference in Israel said that now, because of this agreement, there is no longer an existential threat to Israel from Iran with respect to the nuclear threat. That's from their security in, in Israel. In Paris in December, we joined governments from more than 190 nations in approving a comprehensive agreement to curb greenhouse gases. And you've mentioned the effects uh, that we're seeing in the world today. Uh, we're trying to limit the most harmful consequences of climate change. And we're determined to implement that accord by meeting our targets here at home and helping friends abroad to reduce carbon pollution and move their economies forward at the same time. Just this month, we officially signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership to ensure a level playing field for American businesses and workers to open up job opportunity in 40% of the global GDP, and also to strengthen America's leadership within the entire Pacific. We are asking Congress to approve that pact this year, and we can accrue its benefits as quickly as possible when we do. In Europe, we are sharply upgrading our security reassurance initiative with a fourfold increase in support in giving Russia a clear choice between continued sanctions or meeting its obligations to a sovereign and democratic Ukraine. In our hemisphere, we are helping Colombia to end the globe's longest running civil conflict and we're aiding our partners in Central America to implement reforms that will reduce the pressure for illegal migration. We're also seeking supplemental funds to minimize the danger to public health created by the Zika virus. In Asia, we are standing with our allies in opposition to threats posed by a belligerent North Korea. We are helping Afghanistan and Pakistan to counter violent extremism, deepening our strategic dialogue with India, supporting democratic gains in Sri Lanka and Burma, and encouraging the peaceful resolution of competing maritime claims in the South China Sea a goal that is definitely not helped by the militarization of facilities in that region. So with friends in fast-growing Africa, and we're very grateful for the interest of this committee, Senator Coons and others who've, uh, Senator Flake, uh, others who've really been very focused on it, uh, we've embarked on initiatives to combat hunger, increase connectivity, empower women, train future leaders, and fight back against such terrorist groups as Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram. Now, of course, this administration recognizes that the threat posed by violent extremism extends far beyond any one region and it's not going to be addressed solely or even primarily by military means. So the approach that we've adopted is comprehensive and it's long-term. Diplomatically, we are striving to end conflicts that fuel extremism, such as those in Libya and Yemen, uh, we also work with partners more broadly to share intelligence, tighten broader uh, border security, improve governance, expand access to education, promote job training, and development. And I might add, the coalition we've put together, 66 countries strong now, is gaining traction in many sectors where it hasn't uh, previously worked on these kinds of things uh, as jointly as we are now. Uh, as you all know, we have forged that coalition of 66 to defeat Daesh. Just a quick word on our strategy. 
We are going to combine, we are combining, our power with that of our partners to degrade Daesh's command structure, shrink its territory, curb its financing, hammer its economic assets, discredit its lies, slow its recruitment, and block any attempt to expand its networks. Militarily, we are intensifying pressure through coalition airstrikes, more advisors, stepped-up training, improved targeting, and the systematic disruption of enemy supply lines. And we can go in greater detail, I'm sure, in your questions. To consolidate territorial gains, we're stressing the importance of stabilizing communities freed from Daesh in Syria and Iraq. We're helping the government in Baghdad as it seeks to broaden and professionalize its security forces, and we continue to strengthen our regional partners, Lebanon and Jordan. And we're supporting a broad-based diplomatic effort, which I know we'll talk about today on the Syria war. And two weeks ago, uh, we announced a plan to ensure access to humanitarian supplies for all Syrians in need. I'm pleased to tell you that 114 trucks have gone in. People, at least 80,000 people who haven't had supplies in years now have supplies for the next month at least. And we have resulted in food and medicine reaching places that have been under siege for months. We'll continue to work closely with the UN to see that future requests are honored and that humanitarian supplies are available throughout the country. The United States and Russia are co-chairing the International Syria Support Group Ceasefire Task Force. Yesterday, President Obama and President Putin agreed that the cessation of hostilities should begin on Saturday morning, include all groups willing to participate, with the exception of Daesh and al-Nusra and any other terrorist groups designated by the UN Security Council. We are reminded each day in Syria that every attack, every casualty, every loss, every loved one that is uh, bombed from the air by barrel bombs or otherwise uh, provides fresh grounds for the conflict. As long as the killing goes on, this devastating cycle will feed on itself. And that is why we have urged all parties to support the cessation of hostilities now, and it's why we have argued repeatedly there must be a diplomatic solution. As difficult as it is to get there, there must be a diplomatic solution to this war. The only way forward that preserves a unified Syria is the path envisioned by the Syria Support Group, ratified by the UN Security Council and endorsed by the responsible opposition. And that requires a de-escalation of the conflict, a transition to a new system of governance, a new constitution, an election, and hopefully a Syria that could be committed to peace and stability with its neighbors and within itself. Mr. Chairman, the success of our leadership on terrorism and other security threats is linked to whether or not America is leading the fight to protect what we care about. And the truth is, we are in arena after arena. In all the years I sat on this committee, I never saw us having to deal with quite as many fronts, quite as many challenges as we are today. So this year, we seek your support to stay at the forefront of international humanitarian response, including the worldwide refugee crisis, to strike a blow for global health through PEPFAR, and you talked about it, Senator Cardin, and the President's Malaria Initiative, and to carry out important programs on behalf of democracy, freedom of the press, human rights, and the rule of law, and to launch a new strategy focused on the equitable treatment of adolescent girls 
and to adequately fund the people and the platforms that enable us to serve America effectively around the world. So my colleagues, as the chairman said, this is the last budget the Obama administration will submit on behalf of the foreign policy and national security of the United States. And I ask for its fair consideration, welcome your questions, appreciate your counsel, and I seek your backing. But above all, uh, I want to say how privileged I feel to have had the chance to work with all of you in support of an agenda that reflects not only the most fundamental interests and values of the American people, but also carries with it, I am absolutely convinced, the hopes of the world. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, thank you. I couldn't agree more that uh, the hopes of the world very much uh, depend upon us. And uh, again, I thank you for your testimony. Before we get into other longer discussions, um, you didn't mention Afghanistan. And uh, I was there a couple of months ago and witnessed that continued duplicity on Pakistan's part, outright blatant duplicity, where they continue to, to support the Taliban, the Akani network, and give safe haven to al-Qaeda. Uh, most of us have been to the Waziristans and seen the tremendous amount of taxpayer money that's gone into uh, changing the context of those areas. But they continue to, to give them safe haven. So recently, they've asked uh, to be able to purchase F-16s. I'd rather them purchase them from a U.S. company than some other company, but uh, they also want U.S. taxpayers to subsidize more than half of that purchase over time. Do you agree with my position uh, that that should not occur until they stop the duplicity that has continued now for 14 years while we've been in Afghanistan? Well, Mr. Mr. Chairman, uh, <clears throat> we're evaluating all aspects of the counterterrorism efforts with respect to Pakistan's impact on Afghanistan, obviously. I just met with Nawaz Sharif, uh, Prime Minister Sharif, uh, a few weeks ago, and we discussed our concerns about uh, the need to rein in particular terrorist groups that are either homegrown in Pakistan or uh, are using Pakistan as a sanctuary. <clears throat> and we've been very, very clear yeah. about uh, the, uh, that, that yeah. they have to target yeah. all militant groups. But, so, we, but if I could, I, I don't want to... Yeah. We, we do know that they know exactly where these people are living, not in the Fatah region, right in Pakistan in neighborhoods that they could interdict while we were having this hearing and they're not. So I, I, I don't want to go into a long discussion about our relationship with Pakistan. I do hope that ultimately you'll support the position that, that I've laid out in my capacity as chairman that zero U.S. taxpayer dollars will go to subsidize Pakistan's purchase until such a time as they do the things that we know they could do to stop helping to destabilize Afghanistan, where men and women in U.S. uniforms have lost their limbs, lives, and huge amounts of taxpayer monies have gone to support a country as it evolves 
in democracy and anti-corruption in other ways? It is a very complicated mix, Mr. Chairman. I know you know this. Um, the government itself, the military, has been very cooperative and very engaged in the fight against terrorism. They've lost tens of thousands of people themselves. And they have had 160 to 180,000 troops out in the western part of the country conducting a sweep, a major operation, again, North Waziristan and elsewhere. They drove the Haqqani network into new locations, and it's an ongoing process. But there are, obviously, and we should deal with this, I think, in a classified session, entities that complicate our efforts very significantly. And we've had those conversations, and I'm happy to go into it in greater depth. I understand your reservations about it, but the F you know, their military has been deeply engaged in the fight against terrorism. They've got several groups there that are of concern, and we should talk in a classified session about what we're trying to do about it. They're partially helping, they're hedging their bets, and they're continuing a long line of duplicity, which is, uh, you know, the greatest threat to U.S. soldiers uh, right now in Afghanistan. And, and I, I know you know that, and I, I agree that the relationship is complex. What, what is our... How should we look at our relationship, speaking of complexity with Russia? Uh, they have done more for a country that has very little economic resources to break Europe apart. They've actually done, in the modern era, it's never occurred like it is right now with what they've done in Ukraine, what they continue to do in delaying the implementation of Minsk III. I know part of that is on Ukraine side too what they've done to threaten the Baltics, what they've done to exacerbate the refugee issue and really use them now uh, in many ways as, as weapons of war. In Syria, uh, I don't think anyone can say that their role has been constructive as they continue, continue to kill the folks that are our friends and allies. And now in Iran, after we've negotiated, after this agreement has been negotiated, uh, in strict violation of the UN security resolution that put it in place, uh, are now getting ready to sell Russian fighter jets to Iran uh, in strict violation of that. So what is our relationship today with Russia? Well, our relationship is one of <laughs> uh, also complicated uh, because obviously we have different positions with respect to Ukraine, different positions with respect to Syria, uh, at least as to the support of Assad, and the question remains to be tested whether or not they're at all serious about the political process. Um, on the other hand, Russia cooperated quite significantly in the Iran negotiations. Russia joined with us in helping to remove the chemical weapons that were the uh, declared chemical weapons under the chemical weapons treaty from Syria. Uh, Russia has cooperated with us in UN resolution, bringing to a head uh, this effort diplomatically. Russia cooperated with us in the Vienna meetings. Uh, they couldn't have happened without uh, Russia's input. And in fact, without Russia's cooperation, uh, I'm not sure we would have been able to uh, have achieved the agreement we have now, or at least get the humanitarian assistance in. 
In the last days, Russia has sent its special envoy in the Syria issue to Syria to talk to the Assad regime and to make sure that they are in agreement to move forward in the diplomatic process as well as to honor the humanitarian requirements. And they sent their defense minister to Iran to do the same. So it's step by step. There are no illusions. Eyes are open. Uh, I, you know, and nobody on this committee should have any illusions. I mean, Russia made it clear years ago that they support Assad. This is not a surprise to us. It is not a surprise that they are following through on their support uh, for uh, uh, Assad, and, and uh, they are also threatened by terrorists. There are maybe 2,000 to 2,500, 3,000 Chechnyans who are fighting in Syria. And the Russians have a serious concern about the return of those Chechens to, uh, you know, Russian soil or places of interest and stirring up uh, their Muslim population and or other objectives they may have. So the bottom line, Mr. Chairman, is that we are uh, proceeding on a step-by-step uh, -step process by which the delivery of actions is what speaks. In five days, we, we will meet again in Geneva in the next few days to work on the modalities of the cooperation so that it's Nusra that is attacked and not moderate opposition. And so that we are both understanding how we're proceeding against ISIL. There could be a significant benefit, could be, in that we wind up having greater effort against ISIL and can speed up uh, the uh, destruction of, uh, of Daesh. But uh, this all will be, the proof will be in the actions that come in the next days. Well, again, I thank you and, for and your my, efforts. May I say, I really appreciate your comments about Europe. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Europe is, is deeply threatened by what is happening. They're talking about different border measures that may be taken. I think it is imperative for the United States to be prepared to help Europe as much as necessary in every way possible in order to address uh, what is happening uh, in the pressures being put on them. But uh, in the next days, we will know more. Now, when I met with President Putin, I said to him very directly that the test here is not a test that's going to be proven in six months or in a year and a half when the election is supposedly scheduled. We're going to know in a month or two whether or not this transition process is really serious or three, whatever. We'll have a sense of that. And they're going to have to make some, you know, Assad himself is going to have to make some real decisions about the formation of a transitional governance process that's real. If there isn't, as you've read in the newspapers and are probably hearing, uh, there are certainly plan B uh, options being considered. I don't think they think plan B is realistic, but and I think that makes it very difficult for you and your efforts. I again want to thank you for uh, uh, your efforts on our behalf. I want to, I do think the breakthrough on the humanitarian side was, was a good thing, but uh, I think you have a very tough hand of cards that you're dealing with. And again, we uh, we appreciate you being here today and, and for your service to our country. With that, Ranking Thanks, Member. Mr. Well, once again, uh, Secretary, thank you for your uh, service to our country. And thank you for sharing with us today. 
Let me uh, follow up a little bit on Syria. I, I, obviously, the first challenge was to stop the shootings between the government and opposition, uh, supported by Russia and the government, and to allow humanitarian access so that the humanitarian crisis can be eased, at least uh, hopefully this will stop some of the flow of the uh, refugees uh, and that it will take some of the pressure, internal pressure, in order to be able to get a negotiation as to the future of Syria itself. That's the objective here. And uh, I strongly support that. Uh, you've alluded to this, but I hope you could be a little bit clearer as to what comes next. There seems to be a fundamental disagreement between the United States and Russia as to the future of President Assad. It's been silence as to the accountability of the Assad regime for its war crimes. And a lot of us are determined that when leaders uh, commit war crimes, they must be held accountable for their actions. And I understand there will be a process. At the end of the day, there needs to be a government in Syria that has the confidence of all of its people. Otherwise, we'll be back fighting again, and we're not going to be able to concentrate against the ISIL forces, which is the objective here. Can you just share with us briefly how do you see the next step unfolding where we can get to a result where there is truly a government in Syria that has the confidence of, both, uh, of all the population? So let me try to lay this out as, as clearly as I can and certainly how, how we see the options here. Look, Russia, the United States, and Iran, and our allies all say that we want a united Syria. The vast preponderance of the players say they want a non-sectarian, even secular Syria, status quo ante in which all minorities are protected, in which the people of Syria have the right to choose their leadership and their future. The Russians agree to that. The Iranians agree to that. All of our allies agree to that fundamental precept. So we're united on sort of this vision of where we want Syria to be. The question is the getting there. We believe deeply, and we have argued this to the Russians and to the Iranians and others, that even if you wanted to, even if someone did strike an unholy alliance and suggested, you know, Assad, uh, uh, you know, could be part of that future, the war will not stop. As long as Assad is there, you cannot stop the war because of the grievous uh, events that have transpired over the course of the last years. People don't see how someone who has gassed his own people driven so many of them into refugee status and displaced, tortured them, starved them, barrel bombed them. How he somehow is going to be the glue that brings the place back together is beyond anybody's understanding. And there are forces out there that will never stop fighting him. So if you want peace, by definition, we believe it has to be without Assad. What the Russians and others have said is, let the Syrian people have to decide that. But this political process that we have created is what they say is the mechanism by which that decision could begin to be made. 
Now, what's the, what timing do you see? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? No, we're talking months because there's no way that people will be patient enough, obviously. First of all, there's a six-month period that has been basically laid out for the political transition to try to be put in place. Now, if it's real and really happening, uh, that could move. If it isn't, as I said earlier, we will know. If they're stalling, if there's an absolute stonewall, if there's no progress, if nothing happens, it's going to be very hard to keep people at the table. I have no illusions about that. There are people who will say this is a farce and they'll walk away. So I think we're going to see very quickly whether or not countries are serious about this transition and whether or not Assad is serious about it. Now, President Putin said and has said publicly and, and Foreign Minister Lavrov have said and said publicly that they're committed to this process and, and, and that their support for Assad uh, is an important component of his need to take part in it. As far as holding President Assad accountable for the crimes that he has committed, has there been any uh, understanding reached uh, either for impunity or for no. actions? No, there's been no no discussion of it, no determination of it. And we obviously, I mean, I have said several times publicly, uh, we've talked about the crimes that have been committed. I mean, using gas against your own people is a war crime. Starvation as a tool of war is a war crime. So these are pretty clear things. Thank you. Uh, let, let me turn to the area I, I said in my opening comments about democracy funding, anti-corruption, et cetera, which to me is, is critically important. I do think that you have showcased the importance of anti-corruption activities. We've talked in the Ukraine. Uh, if we get Russia to leave Ukraine alone, Ukraine's survival depends upon the internal reforms in its own country where the people have an honest government. That was one of the major reasons for the Maidan and the protests and the, that occurred in Ukraine. Uh, when we look at countries we're dealing with in Asia, including in TPP, we find countries that have serious corruption problems within their government, and we try to take steps in the TPP to deal with some of those issues. And we go through country after country where the impunity in Central America of, 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 of people being held uh, to commit crimes without any accountability. Bef I would hope this year we could work together, this committee and, and your leadership, to, to develop a protocol where we make it clear that we won't tolerate a government that doesn't move to deal with the corruption problems. We're talking about developing an index similar to what we do in trafficking in persons for corruption. There has been transparency uh, evaluations done of countries. Can you just share with us uh, steps that you're taking uh, to provide a more permanent structure within the State Department to deal with the problems of corruption and good governance? Well, uh, Senator, I'm glad you bring that up because I gave a, a, a speech at uh, Davos uh, just a few weeks ago in which I talked about the challenge of global corruption. Uh, it is one of the most uh, 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 difficult challenges that we face in trying to deal with extremism, trying to deal with counter-narcotics, with trafficking in persons. Um, and the levels of corruption, I have to say, uh, are higher than, than 
are, are greater in impact than I had perceived previously in my years on the committee and otherwise. Um, it's having a profound impact. It steals the future from young people. I mean, in a sense, the Tunisian uprising in the Arab Spring was born not out of anything religious motivated. It came about as a result of corruption. A police officer was refusing to allow that Tunisian fruit vendor to sell his wares and wanted the bribe and so forth. And so when he got slapped around, it was one slap too many. And he self-immolated, and that's what ignited the revolution that saw change sweep through the region. I see that in other countries incipiently. And uh, Nigeria, it was reported that former generals stole some, you know, 50 billion, some extraordinary amount of money taken out of the country. Yemen, we know enormous amounts taken out of the country. There are many other countries. Uh, we know this is happening. So we are very, very focused on this issue uh, and the standard. And in the, uh, in the State Department, it's this effort is led by the Bureau of International Narcotics and Enforcement Affairs. But it's really an all-department uh, uh, effort. Um, and we uh, promote standards in, in many, many different ways. We, we bottle our proposals to countries on our best practices. I might add, with respect to Ukraine, the IMF uh, has put a very strong 10-point program in front of the government in Kiev that they need to address in full in order to get further support from uh, the uh, IMF, and that has a very significant reform package in it. We met in, in uh, the last weeks, the Vice President and I met with President Poroshenko. We've been very clear about steps that need to be taken. We're working very closely with them. And that's really the best way to do this. I mean, I know there's an instinct. People want to put hard lines in place legislatively, and there's sort of a draconian do this or else kind of message. That often winds up in severing our capacity to have an impact. And what I've found we're able to do working with countries is actually get them to move on things and make changes. Uh, and it, it, you know, we're, we're, we're working. Uh, we're co-chair of the G20 anti-corruption working group. Uh, and we've advanced standards internationally on transparency, on integrity, on countering impunity. So this is an ongoing effort. And it's not going to be resolved overnight, obviously. But the more we focus on it, uh, the greater the outlook, the, the prospects are that it's going to have an impact and will make a difference. And we are making a difference in a lot of places. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, thanks for coming here, testifying. Thanks for your service. Uh, I have to take this opportunity, though. I've got to put on my Chairman of Homeland Security Government Affairs hat. Uh, as you are aware, my committee has jurisdiction over national security procedures and federal records. And I've joined in letters with uh, Chairman Corker and Chairman Burr and Chairman Grassley, and we've, we've sent you a number of letters, and you've been responsive in, in part, and I appreciate that. Uh, I want to go through a series of questions. Don't, I don't need real long answers, but I just want to establish that so I can hopefully get to put my foreign relations hat on as well. Um, first of all, you do, you, as Secretary of State, you send and receive classified material, correct? You, you have? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't send it personally directly. I, I, it's sent through the executive office. Okay. So you, you never 
use your email system to actually create classified materials? Or you send them, so you, no, I don't. You never do that. I've but, actually never opened my computer on my desk. Okay, so members of your staff do. <laughs> okay, I understand. I got white hair too. Um, no, but, it's not because I don't know how. I want it separated from me, and I don't good. do it. So members of your staff do, correct? Yes, of course. Okay, and then, then they use, uh, uh, they use a, a system called ClassNet, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, you are aware, fully aware of our enemy's capabilities in terms of hacking into... Indeed. Okay. Indeed. Would, would you allow, so you don't use... You don't allow yourself to use a private server. Would you lose, you allow any of your members of your staff to use a, a non-official, non-secure server for transmitting classified information? Look, uh, it, just, just yes or no. Senator, I understand. Just, just yes or no. Uh, we have very specific procedures in place in the department. I brought in an inspector general. I wrote a letter to the inspector general asking him to review our entire process and so, in, in today's world, given uh, all that we've learned and what we understand about the, the, uh, fragility, the uh, vulnerability right. of our system, we don't do that, so, no. So, so the answer is no. Um, you, for every classified piece of information that is transmitted, there's a log kept at the State Department, correct? Yes. Okay. There's a log kept on everything. I mean, all the, all, everything's kept, period. Not just the log, but the substance of the... Uh, Messages kept okay. uh, and filed. I would think that's a relatively condensed log, though. I mean, pretty easily accessible. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'll, there's I'll a there's a finite, finite number of classified materials back and forth. It would be well, lost. Well, so we, we have 275 posts, and we're sending classified every single day, and I can't tell you how many millions of are, are, the, are the logs differentiated by individual, though? Uh, I don't know precisely. Okay, well, uh, well, we'll we'll find that out. I don't believe um, so. In uh, a September 21st letter, 2015, uh, one, of, one of our questions was, did Secretary Clinton have an official State Department email account assigned to her for accessing classified emails during her time at the State Department? We did receive, and I appreciate this, response from uh, Julia Fryfield uh, that states, to answer question five, Secretary Clinton did not use a classified email account at the State Department. An account was set up on ClassNet for her calendar, but it was not used. Um, another question we've asked, which is we have not been responded to, is I would like access, our committee would like access to those logs in the State Department of all the classified material that uh, was transferred between the administration, other members of the administration within the State Department and Secretary Clinton. Uh, you have not responded to that yet. It's been about five months. Is there a reason why we have not had access to those logs? Um, I don't know the specific reason uh, because I, it hasn't been discussed with me. I have. Uh, uh, is, is there any reason I can't get access to those logs? Well, I don't know the answer to that, Senator. Okay, well, so so I'll you know, put that for questions record. I'll, I'll continue to want a response to that. Right. Um, but let me. Let here, here's me a budget question. So that you understand. I appointed a transparency coordinator, an experienced ambassador, Janice Jacobs, to assist us to make sure we responded okay. rapidly to all requests. Let me I'm, just say to you, we have more than 50, I'm, I'm, more than 50 simultaneous investigations going on. And we have an unprecedented number of FOIA requests. I have had to cannibalize bureaus to get people 
to go spend uh, their my, time my, which is my next question press. do you know how much money you've spent and what kind of manpower you put on because this has been you've been really evaluating these emails since March 2015 do you know how much money the State Department has spent just reviewing because again I, I think we have to assume that every piece of information that passed over Secretary Clinton's non-official, non-secure private server is in the hands of our enemy. We have to assume that. I mean, that's prudent to do so. Uh, so you've been reviewing that for almost a year. Do you know how much you've spent in the, the manpower associated with, with well, uh, I, I cleaning up have, that mess? I would have to look. As I said to you, we have over 50 investigations, nine different committees involving hundreds of specific requests for Literally, okay. Well, hundreds I'll, I'll, of wait, wait, wait. Hundreds of thousands of pages. I'm, of again, I'm not. I'm not concerned about the other investigations well, I'm right now. I'm asking a question I'm, on on no, the one with Hillary but Clinton's let me just emails. Say that I'm concerned about it because <laughs> this is tying up. Good. I'm, I'm glad you are. National diplomats. Do, are you aware? Has the FBI recovered any of the 55,000 emails that were supposedly supposedly wiped from her server? I have no server? knowledge of what the FBI. I'd have to ask the FBI. I, we don't touch or know anything about their. Uh, have you in the Emails but you allocated 2.4 million uh, in years 15 and 16 in order to help us respond to you, and we've been able to step up the level of our delivery as a result of that. So, but we're so still greatly so, overburdened. So, based on what you have reviewed, uh, the classified material, because we're up to a, what 1,700 different emails that have some variation of uh, some level of classified material on them. I don't know. Is the State Department aware of anything that you've had to mitigate the damage from? I mean, have you taken any actions within the State Department? Do you know where the intelligence community has taken any actions to mitigate the harm by the potential fact, or the, poten the potential, that uh, our enemies might have access to that classified materials on Secretary Clinton's server? I, I would not be able to discuss that in an open session, but I can tell you that the, the department we have, I don't know what the other agencies have done or not done. By the way, that's one of the reasons why it's taken a while. If we have anything, <coughs> in an email, when one of our professionals reads the email that involves another agency, then every agency has to have a chance to read that to see if their interests are in fact at risk. So that takes a long time, and that's right. one of the reasons. No, I know. Why Secretary Clinton's actions have caused the federal government an awful lot of money, <coughs> a lot of, lot of, caused you an awful lot of uh, heartache, headache. Well, it, remains, uh, let me just, it so, remains, Senator, it remains to be seen whether or not it's. Uh, uh, it's the 50 investigations by nine different committees that have created more heartburn. So what I would like is answer these questions. You say you can't do it in open committee. Would you commit to coming in a secure setting before my committee to answer some of these questions? Would I what? Would you come before my committee in a secured setting, the Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee, to answer some of these questions based on national security I, I, procedures I'm not, I'm and not federal records? I'm not an appropriate person to discuss those uh, issues in that context. Well, will you send a representative then? Well, it would be, I'll find it would be out. Capable. I, will actually, I will evaluate uh, with others in the administration through the appropriate interagency process who the appropriate person is to do okay. that. Of course, someone appropriately responsible would always respond to any committee of the Congress. Well, again, it's been five months we've been asking for the logs of the classified materials since, so I would ask for, the, for those logs as well. Well, again, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not sure whether that's even authorized or capable of being done, but we'll, we'll okay. look at it. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. First I've heard of it. Thank you. Senator Boxer. Yeah. I just want to say before I welcome you, uh, the Senator is injecting presidential politics into this. I resent it. And I would like to say for the record that we know that secretaries 
uh, Rice and Powell use their own private email, and I know of no senator, I know of no senator, that hasn't sent emails about the work of this subject matter and other subject matter on their personal emails. So let's be clear. Now, um, I I'm really disappointed in this. I, I think we should be working together on the subject of today's hearing. Senators Corker and Cardin, I thank you so much for this hearing. And I thank you both for your leadership. Uh, it's extraordinary the way you work together. And as a ranking member myself working with Senator Inhofe, it's so important that we do that to restore faith, frankly, in this government. And Secretary Kerry, I just want to say how much I appreciate your accomplishments, especially in these very difficult times. As you point out, so many hotspots all over the world. And I want to be specific about what I'm talking about when I compliment you. First of all, your work on the Iran nuclear agreement. I know it's controversial, but I also know how hard it was. And while you're doing that, also your continued support uh, for Israel uh, in this budget. It's so important. And thirdly, your opening relations with Cuba and your, your and, and fourth, the uh, global climate change negotiations. And fifth, your efforts to bring Russia to an agreement regarding Syria. It was way back, three, four years ago, that Dick Durbin, Senator Durbin, called a bunch of us together to meet with the Russian ambassador to say, can't we work together so that there could be a peaceful transition in Syria? And there was the Russian ambassador. That was the most brutal meeting I've ever been to. It was horrible. And, you know, all we said is let's work together for the future of the world, for the future of the Syrian people. And he was impossible. And so, frankly, this I'm not being diplomatic. You have to be, but I don't. I blame Russia and Iran for what is happening there, for the quarter of a million deaths since we had that meeting of innocent women and children. It's horrible. And so uh, I'm going to ask you if I have time. I'm gonna, I have two subject matters I want to cover with you. One is Cuba and one is Syria. So I'll start off with Cuba. Um, I'm a strong supporter of the president's decision to reestablish diplomatic relations with Cuba, another very difficult issue on this committee. I was proud to join you uh, at the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in Havana uh, last August, and it was so emotional to see and speak with the same Marines, Mr. Secretary, who took down the flag 50 years ago, who raised the flag again, and to see how excited they were to be there and to do that. And to me, it is through engagement. We have the best chance to support the Cuban people. How do I know this? And I respect my friends on both sides of the aisle who disagree with me vehemently and disagree with you vehemently and disagree with the president vehemently. But really, we tried isolation for 50 years, and how did that go? And so I think we have to move forward and get past it. Um, people have a right to believe what they want to, and I have no animosity toward them. There's reasons they put forward that are deeply held. But I think those folks are living in the past. Walking through the embassy last August, I did feel like I had traveled through time. The building which 
has been, not been upgraded in over 30 years was clearly in disrepair and understaffed. I see that the administration requests $3.8 million for upgrades to our embassy in Cuba in its fiscal year 2017 budget. So whether or not one agrees with the new policy, could you tell us, because I know so many Americans are traveling to Cuba, there aren't enough hotel rooms. That's why Airbnb is doing so well there. That's where people are staying. Um, could you comment on why we really need this these funds uh, to rebuild the embassy. Secondly, what are your priorities with respect to Cuba for the remainder of the administration, and what does the president hope to achieve with his upcoming historic visit in March? Well, thank you very much, Senator Boxer. Um, the current staffing in Havana is uh, inadequate to support the goals of our objectives, uh, 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 being able to do the diplomacy, the normal diplomacy, and we were able to negotiate with the Cubans successfully a 50% increase in staffing. So we're very eager to reverse this shortfall, which will be helpful in terms of helping business, helping travelers, helping uh, Americans. We haven't increased any direct hire staff since uh, 2014. Uh, and Cuba, uh, excuse me, the, our embassy there has hosted over 40 congressional and executive branch official delegations just in the year since the president announced the, the opening of diplomatic relations. So um, we also negotiated greater freedom for our diplomats to travel within Cuba and better monitor developments and the ability to travel outside Havana and interact with Cubans outside the capital is obviously important to our relationship and security and uh, support of the Cuban people. So. Um, we also were able to negotiate a number of um, containers going down there in order to help refurbish some of the uh, embassy, which you're right, uh, has not had any care in, in a long period of time. So um, we have concerns still. I'm not going to pretend to anybody that, you know, I think the president said at the beginning that, you know, not everything is going to change overnight. And there are still human rights issues. I'm, a frack may be down there in the next week or two to have a human rights dialogue Good. specifically. Good. Um, and and we what are, does the president hope to achieve? Well, the president hopes to press forward on the agenda of speaking to the people of Cuba uh, about uh, the future. And obviously, he's anxious to press on the uh, rights of people to be able to demonstrate, to have democracy, to be free, to be able to, you know, uh, speak and, and uh, hang a sign in their window without being put in jail for several years for so doing it. So just to sum it up, because I have one more question for you. He's going to speak directly to the Cuban people, and that's really good. Um, my last question is, um, as the person who is perhaps engaged the most with the Russians, and I talk about the frustration senators felt when we met years ago uh, with the Russians, do you believe they're truly willing to commit to a cessation of hostilities uh, in the Syrian area and a peace process that allows for the eventual removal of Assad? What's your assessment? My assessment is that we have an opportunity to put to test the proposition that they are committed to a political solution. And if indeed the only outcome that anybody believes can occur is a political solution, we have no choice but to try to get the modalities in place to be able to get to the table and argue about it. 
So as Senator Corker has said, you know, our, our tools, my tools are the tools of diplomacy, the tools of trying to reach an agreement, trying to use whatever leverage we have to get an outcome. The outcome we've gotten is to have everybody who's a stakeholder at the same table, all of them agreeing in this process, to have Russia joining us with China and France and Britain as the five permanent members of the Security Council, going to the Security Council with Germany and others in order to get a UN Security Council resolution outlining a framework for a political settlement, and Russia voting for it. So if we're going to test whether the words mean anything, we have to put in place a process like we have here. Now, Senator Corker mentioned Aleppo and what they've been doing in the ensuing weeks. Yeah, they have been bombing. And imagine what would have happened if we didn't even have an agreement to end in two weeks or one week. They'd still be bombing. You have to begin a ceasefire sometime. But you can't begin it on day one without working out the modalities of it. You have to sit there and say, okay, what are the... What are the rules? What are you, who's going to live by what? And in this case, that was particularly difficult because of the different players that you have involved in this. So, well, if I could just reclaim my time because yeah. I've gone over. I just hope it's not a rope-a-dope deal. Well, I look, just hope. I, it may be. I'm not, not that you have here. another option. I'm not suggesting you But if humanitarian it. assistance flows, if the guns do silence with the exception of the effort against Daesh and Nusra on Saturday, if they do, and, 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 and lives are saved, then that's to the benefit. And it doesn't mean that it's automatically going to have a positive outcome in the political process, folks. In fact, but, but let me say this, because Senator Corker raised an important issue. He said Russia has sort of been accomplishing its ends in the meantime. Well, folks, even if Russia took Aleppo, even if Russia is sitting there, holding territory has always been difficult. And if the war doesn't end, if, 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 if the Turks and Qataris and Saudis and others continue to support opposition and we're supporting opposition and the opposition continues to fight, this can get a lot uglier. And Russia has to be sitting there evaluating that too. So the question is, at some point in time, someday, someone's going to have to sit down at a table and arrive at an understanding about what Syria is going to be. But it may be too late to keep it as a whole Syria if we wait much longer. Mm -hmm. So that's what's at issue here. And I'm not going to vouch for this. I'm not going to say this process is sure to work, because I don't know. But I know that this is the best way to try to end the war, and it's the only alternative available to us if, indeed, we're going to have a political settlement. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Secretary. And, uh, appreciate the testimony so far. Um, I share the concerns that uh, Senator uh, Cardin raised with regard to OCO and the shift. Uh, this is something that all of us have been concerned, the chairman and others, over the years, uh, the shift from baseline funding to OCO funding. It's just not, just not an honest way to, to budget. And I'm not blaming the administration any more than I'm blaming Congress here, but we've got to get away from it. Uh, let me talk a little about the, the trip that Senator Cardin mentioned, that he and I and Senator Coons from this committee and two other members of Congress took uh, to Southern Africa, um, mostly to look at wildlife trafficking and poaching and uh, to provide some oversight for some of the programs that uh, our government has with the various governments there. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, we have seen a decline in the elephant population in Africa over the past 10 years of about uh, 40 to 50 percent. 
Um, rhinos are being poached at just one park, Kruger, in South Africa, to the tune of about 1,200 just last year. When we were in Namibia, we went into a vault where they held illegal seizures of rhino horn and ivory. And I, I held uh, one horn, well, two horns from one uh, white rhino that uh, on the black market was worth about $600,000. One set of rhino horns. Um, it goes for about $60,000 a K, uh, more, more uh, expensive than any precious metal or, or anything else, or cocaine or drugs. Uh, and those countries are very worried that, uh, uh, that criminal networks will come in that will fund uh, conflicts and instability like they have in Central Africa and elsewhere. So I would just uh, say that the, the programs that we have going uh, in those countries to help these countries actually respond uh, to this threat are, are important and we ought to keep, keep going with that. Um, also, Senator Cardin mentioned uh, the, the issue of uh, tra trafficking in people or TIP, the report that we have. Senator Cardin raised that just about everywhere we went. Um, that is an important lever that we have to, to uh, induce these governments to help more on this, in this area. But it is concerning in some areas uh, in Namibia when it was raised uh, the government responded, uh, you know, hey, we, we've tried to respond. Uh, they, after we left, there were newspaper articles um, expressing some confusion about where they were and where they are. And it's not just the Namibian government. Some of the other governments have expressed some uh, confusion about how they respond. Uh, when you look at uh, what we're trying to induce these governments to do, one of the things is uh, the government of the country should make a serious and sustained effort to eliminate severe uh, forms of trafficking in persons. Those items are maybe a little too subjective. And if we want to use this as an effective lever to push these countries more where we want them to be, I would suggest that maybe we, we need to work on, on uh, some of these measures to make them more concrete and precise. Do you have any thoughts? In that, I know this is an area that's of concern to you, and you've uh, been working with these governments. Well, thank you, Senator. I know this is not uh, on everybody's mind, obviously, but I'll tell you, it should be. And I wish it were uh, something that we were able to do more about, and we should be able to. The same criminal networks that engage in the wildlife trafficking also, by the way, engage in trafficking in human persons, in narcotics trafficking. It's a multi-billion dollar criminal enterprise. And it is destroying um, the future for uh, lots of countries that could rely on uh, ecotourism or other things. But it's also uh, I mean, it's eliminating species from the planet. I think there's one rhino. I saw the other day, I think there's one white rhino in one country left. That's all. When I was in Kenya recently, I visited the David Sheldrick uh, uh, Preserve there, uh, where there were a bunch of orphan baby elephants because the parents had been killed, uh, and the poaching is, has been reduced significantly because they now have wardens out there armed, and there's a price you pay if you're caught. That's the only way, I mean, it has to be stopped by enforcement. You cannot have impunity in the system. 
And when it's part of a criminal enterprise in what has become a, a, you know, a, a, a klepto country of one kind or another, it's extremely hard to do anything about this. So we need to galvanize uh, countries together and we need to put, unfortunately, this also is one of those things that takes resources. You've got to be able to provide the shelter, the refuge. You've got to be able to provide the enforcement mechanism, train people, make sure that, uh, uh, there's, a, uh, that there's no impunity with respect to this. And uh, until this moment, there hasn't been the, you know, a significant enough effort. Now, I know you and Senator Coons are contemplating legislation on this. Um, we'd welcome talking to you about it. The one concern that we have is it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. We're, we're cooperating now with a lot of countries, and they're cooperating with us. And if we get into, you know, we're, we're worried about the prospect that if there's sort of a frontal assault on them, we may lose the cooperation rather than be able to make the progress we're making. It's something we should talk about. So what's the best way to get the return on investment here? Well, thank you. Let me just, uh, the last question. Uh, I just want to commend the administration what, for what they've done on Cuba, as was mentioned before. Um, I uh, have, have said to the president and others that uh, we, there are still obviously big concerns with the Cuban government uh, in the area of human rights, for example. Uh, but it shouldn't be lost on anyone. The improvement uh, in the condition of, of Cuban people since many changes have been made. For example, a few years ago when the President lifted restrictions on Cuban-American travel and lifted caps on remittances, that in, in combination with some changes made uh, in Cuba have meant that uh, nearly 25 percent of the Cuban workforce is now outside of government, whether they're running private hotels um, or Airbnb with a bed and breakfast, uh, a private auto repair shop or a beauty salon. And, uh, and these people who have that ability now um, are separate as much as you can be in Cuba from government and are enjoying richer, fuller, more free lives than they would have otherwise. We still have a long way to go, but we're moving in the right direction. And I commend uh, the administration for the steps that have been taking and, taken and, uh, and I wish the president well on his visit there. I think it's an important step. Thank you very much, Senator. Appreciate it. We appreciate your support. Before moving to Senator Menendez, I do want to, uh, this is, uh, you know, Slavery and Trafficking Awareness Week. We have a hearing tomorrow uh, on this very topic. I very much appreciate you bringing it up. And I want to thank the State Department for uh, working with us. This committee passed unanimously under Senator Menendez's leadership. Um, the End Modern Slavery Act. Um, we had a down payment on that, that uh, we're working closely with the State Department to, to get to the right places. But with, this has to be a global effort when there are 27 million people today enslaved. I know you know that, this committee knows that, and we look forward to continuing to work with you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your drive and leadership on that issue. Uh, let me join the Chair and the Ranking Member in saluting you, uh, Secretary Kerry, for your uh, service. Um, while I may have disagreements at times on policy, I never doubt uh, your commitment to America's uh, uh, virtues and promoting those virtues abroad. Uh, and let me make a comment or two which I did not intend uh, in my preparation today. I guess it's the political hunting season, 
But if you keep shooting and you don't land anything, maybe there's nothing to shoot at. And I think the global needs that we have, that the, we'd be far better off with the State Department focused on that. And on Cuba, I would just say to my dear friend from California, I wish she was here, uh, that human rights and democracy are never about the past. They are eternal from my perspective. And yet, uh, all I can say is that there's a difference between the president traveling to Cuba and when he traveled to Burma, for example. When he traveled to Burma, we had Union Sun Yi released from house arrest. We had by-elections, however flawed. We had the 11 commitments to release political prisoners. We got the Red Cross access to prisons and so forth. There were concrete and tangible progress on political reform and human rights. If anything, we're going backwards here. Some of the people who were released under the original deal have already been re-arrested and are serving long terms in prison. So much for good faith. We had 1,400 arrests this year alone in the first two months. That's progress. 1,400 arrests. Not because I say it, but the UN Commission on, uh, I mean, the, uh, the Cuban Commission on Human Rights, which is inside of Cuba, says it. And when we do business with the Castro regime, which is what we're doing, we're not doing business with the Cuban people. We're doing with Castro's son and son-in-law, who head the two major entities by which you can do, the only way you can do business inside of Cuba, both heads of the Cuban military, both were going to have a transitional and generational change from one set of Castro's to another. So uh, I'm going to continue to speak out on that issue because uh, I think that human rights and democracy in Cuba is incredibly important, as I have viewed it elsewhere in the world, and I am concerned that what we've done is neutered our programs there. But let me get to the heart of what I really wanted to talk about, uh, and that is uh, Iran. Uh, I want to ask you, Mr. Secretary, invoking sanctions against Iranian activities unrelated to its nuclear portfolio, let's say items of proliferation of ballistic missile technology or support for terrorism, they do not violate the terms of the JCPOA, correct? They do not what? They, that pursuing uh, actions, sanctions, and other actions on proliferation of missile technology and uh, support for terrorism, they do not violate the terms of the JCPOA. That's accurate. Okay. Now, I look at what has transpired since our agreement. Uh, we have seen two ballistic uh, tests in violation of UN Security Councils. We've seen missiles tested in the vicinity of U.S. naval vessels. We've seen American sailors detained. We have seen the border of four innocent Americans held hostage for the freedom of 21 Iranian criminals including those convicted of conspiracy and material support to a state sponsor of terrorism, shipping sensitive dual-use technology, money, and other materials in violation of standing U.S. sanctions. We've seen clemency for another 14. We've awarded the Iranian government $1.7 billion, admittedly for some type of contractor service that we didn't provide, but that was never, ever talked about. Not when I was chairman, not when I was a ranking member, not as a member of this committee. I never heard about that at all. And it was done so quickly, and the payment was made so rapidly that even the victims of terrorism who have judgments in the United States didn't have the wherewithal to try to attach it. So I look at that, and then I see the challenges that we have with Iran outside of its nuclear portfolio. Support to a Houthi insurgency that uh, help topple the internationally uh, recognized government of Yemen, 
support to Shia militias in Iraq that exercise profound control over the democratically elected Iraqi government, uh, support to the Syrian regime of Assad, which is a devastating war that we all know about, financing of billions of dollars to Lebanese, Hezbollah, and Hamas. And so I look at that, and I just don't see where the counterweight is. And I look at that and say, I, I have a sense we are creating a permissive environment. Why do I say that? When we look at Iran's ballistic missile launches, which violated UN Security Council resolutions, we waited an inordinate amount of time, knowing that the United Nations ultimately wasn't going to act and didn't. Uh, and uh, when we finally did provide some sanctionable action uh, well after the, all of the elements of the implementation day took place, we have 11 entities that were sanctioned uh, but instead of sanctioning the banks that were financing those entities so that we have a more far-reaching consequence, we're playing whack-a-mole. And so we have the ability to be far more aggressive against the Iranians on those things that we care about. And I know there is this desire to try to create the space for the moderates inside of Iran, even though they were just blocked by the Guardian Council uh, into a way in which there are virtually no moderates who are being allowed to run in the legislative elections. So I look at that and I say, why is it that we aren't being far more aggressive with the tools that we have? And finally, uh, Mr. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce into the record a GAO report that I had commissioned with Senator Kirk. Without objection. Uh, and it talks about the entity that which we are putting all the marbles in the International Atomic Energy Administration. Now, I think they do good work. But let me uh, just say that some of the preliminary findings cause concern for me about what is capable, what the IAEA is capable of. So let me read some of them. GAO's preliminary observations point directly to future problems with monitoring, verifying, and meeting requirements of the JCPOA. It talks about its limitation, a limited budget from irregular irregular funding sources, human resource shortfalls, important equipment operating at capacity already, not being able to go beyond that, limited analytical capabilities that will all be tested by the new mandates of the JCPOA, a lack of authorities. Obviously, the IAEA activities will depend to a significant degree on the cooperation of the Iranian state. Thirdly, that while they have focus virtually all of their resources to uh, pursue the JCPOA, uh, they're going to have very little resources. They turn away from other proliferators uh, and potential proliferators. Uh, and finally, uh, among other items, uh, the IAEA's own estimates has identified the need for approximately $10 million per year for 15 years over and above its present budget. So. It is an agency that is understaffed for its purposes, losing technical assistance, people are leaving, <coughs> has now a singular focus, which I applaud the focus, but I want them to also pursue other proliferators, and a budget that doesn't have the wherewithal to sustain it just for the focus of uh, the JCPOA. So shouldn't Iran, who violated international norm uh, and international law, 
uh, ultimately be the entity to pay, since they are now flush with money that we've given them uh, or returned to them, shouldn't they be the ones to pay for the very essence of the verification and monitoring that they caused the need for in the first place? Um, Senator, you raise a lot, obviously. Uh, let, let me just try to quickly say on Cuba. First of all, I really appreciate your personal comments, and I'm grateful for that. And um, I also respect enormously your commitment. Uh, you know, you're, you're uh, dedicated when it comes to the issue of human rights and freedom, and you've always been very clear about it with respect to Cuba. And uh, we have a difference maybe in the tactics about how to get there, but we don't have a difference in the goal. It's our sense that, um, that we've already seen some improvement in empowerment of the Cuban people in the private sector now employing one in four Cubans. It's grown significantly and is growing. And as the flights come in and more and more people are there, there's a transformation taking place. Anybody who's been down there uh, and had been there previously has observed this change that's taking place. Um, people in the United States can now send unlimited remittances in support of private business investment. Um, and 1,400 and arrests just provide this year alone. 1,400 arrests? It's not perfect. I, Nobody... I, 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 didn't, I didn't really ask you for comments on Cuba, which I, I appreciate. Well, I, think it's I, I just wanted to let you know, uh, and for the record, how I felt. I would like responses to the question of Iran, though. Sure. With respect to Iran, um, we believe we are being uh, more than vigilant, actually. On January 17th, we designated three entities and seven and eight individuals who had provided materials for Iran's ballistic missile program. So we sanctioned people, uh, and we cut them off from the U.S. financial system. Uh, we have continually uh, been tracking the implementation with great impact. Uh, we had a couple of questions about one thing or another. We raised them with the Iranians, and we resolved them in, our, in, in a way that kept faith with exactly what should be happening. They weren't malicious. They were just normal kinds of things that had risen in the course of uh, process, and we're happy to brief Congress. I'm sure you'll be fully briefed on every aspect of that. Um, yes, the IAEA does need more money. We know that. Uh, there are additional inspectors, however, under our agreement, who will be in there, 130 of them. And we are, as you know, our intel community and our energy department remain absolutely clear that they have the ability to be able to verify and track this agreement. Uh, so the GAO is helpful. Uh, I think anybody's scrutiny that adds some choices for what can be done to make sure we're doing this correctly can do so. But the bottom line is we know that they took out uh, from 19,000 centrifuges down to 5,060. We know that they took the calandria out of the plutonium reactor and destroyed it, filling it with cement, can never be used again. We know there is no enrichment taking place in Fort Dow and so forth. So my, my time is over, well over, so I appreciate the chairman's courtesy. My focus wasn't about the implementation of the JCPOA. It is about Iran's malign activities within the region that we let me, seem let me to come be pushing to that. back. We're, we're, also, we're, um, we're also extremely focused on that. I had a meeting with the GCC a few weeks ago. We're meeting again 
somewhere in the next few weeks. We are, uh, I think we've plussed up our uh, assistance in the billions of dollars in terms of uh, sales to them for their ability to be able to push back against uh, Iranian activities. We have engaged with the Iranians on their activities specifically uh, in uh, Yemen. Uh, and we have high hopes that over the course of uh, this Syria process, we can begin to deal with the flow of weapons that have been coming out of Iran through Damascus into Lebanon and threatening Israel. And we're very clear about that. And the threat of Hezbollah. So, and, uh, and, and the IRGC's engagement in various ways. Now again, some of that should be taken up in a classified session. But we believe uh, that uh, the amount of money that has flowed to Iran thus far, not because we have interfered with it or something, but because it just has not materialized as significantly as a lot of people alleged, is not winding up in uh, some great imbalance in support for activities that we object to. So there are things going on that we obviously, uh, that's why we left in place the sanctions on human rights, the sanctions on arms, the sanctions on missiles, the sanctions on state sponsor of terror are all still there, extant, and subject to enforcement. And we made that clear, which is why we did um, designate people because of the missile test that took place. So no. we're very focused on it, Senator, and together with our allies, and I might add with Israel, um, we're, we're, we're con constantly sharing information uh, and I can assure you every country in the region will be as diligent as we are in tracking what they're doing. So I'm, uh, I'll get an F on being a traffic cop, and uh, I'm going to try to be better uh, for the remainder of the time here. I do appreciate the fulsome answer and questions, and if we uh, uh, could, we'd try to stay closer to our time frame. With that, Senator Perdue. I'll, uh, I'll try to honor the time, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for your energy and effort. Um, we may have disagreed on, on some of the details of some of the efforts, but uh, I respect your effort to represent us diplomatically and solve some of these really tough problems around the world. Uh, it's a very dangerous world. With regard to the budget, which is primarily what we, I thought we were supposed to be talking about today, next week Senator Kane and I uh, will, uh, I'll chair, he's the ranking member of a subcommittee, where we'll have some of your staff talk about a few more details of the State Department's budget request. But I want to note for the record today, um, the State Department, while it's up 25% since 2008, some $12 billion, I recognize it's still 1% of our total spending. Um, I also recognize that the, the world's a lot more dangerous today. In fact, I think we see the world in, in uh, uh, there is having two real major crises. One is this global security crisis that continues to grow every day, but I think when we look at the State Department budget as well as defense budget, we're, we would be well um, positioned to consider it in its full perspective. And I know you, you mentioned this in Munich last week where you represented the United States very well, I thought. But it seems to me <clears throat> that we have an interlocking two crises. One is this, this global sec uh, security crisis on several levels. One is the, the rise of traditional states, China and, and Russia, ever more aggressive. We've got these asymmetric threats in terrorists from Indonesia now to Algeria and here at home. Uh, we also see nuclear proliferation threats, nu but and, and honestly, cooperation between North Korea and Iran, um, even that continues to date. 
And on top of that, we have the cyber warfare dimension that uh, our military is trying to adapt to, and I know your organization is trying to adapt to. And what we don't talk a lot about is the, the growing arms race in space. So, I mean, this is a very complicated world right now. Interlocked with that, though, is our own debt crisis. Our own intransigence here threatens our ability to fund the needs that we have. And I'm coming to a specific question. Uh, before I get to that about uh, Europe, I'd, I'd like to just ask you a quick question about Iran. Originally, we were told the number that they would be uh, given over a period of time was somewhere between 100 and $150 billion. Then the, the administration came back and said, well, we think it's closer to 50 in terms of what they can get. There's some balance sheet issues that they have access to, but cash is about 50. Um, we've heard Iranian officials talk recently about it could be as, uh, in excess of 100. Do we have an update on what that number is quickly? Uh, it's below the 50. And how, do we have any intelligence how they're using it to date? We can talk about that in a classified okay. session. Thank you. Um, the next question is, General Breedlove in Munich just last week described the refugee situation, the, the, the migrant situation in Europe as being the refugees being weaponized. And I know you were there, and I know you commented on that. I'd love to get your comments, though, relative to defense spending in Europe is well under 2%. I think for a generation, Europe has looked to the United States to be the big brother. And now we see Putin seeing that underspending in their military. Our spending right now is about 3% of our GDP. Uh, it's about 100 basis points less than our 30-year average, or, or in today's terms, about $200 billion. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to spend $200 billion more, but I'd like to know what the State Department and your strategy is, the administration strategy is, to deal with Putin in light of these growing dangers from this immigration issue in Europe, particularly in, this, in the very susceptible states of Eastern Europe that used to be satellites of the Soviet Union. Uh, all the way up through the Baltics, but if you come starting in Greece and go up the refugee pipeline, these are very vulnerable states right now. And what, what's our strategy to offset Putin and to deal with, uh, with the growing threat to these uh, very fragile uh, governments? Our strategy is to support them uh, to a much greater degree. Uh, we've got the NATO assurance program that's in place. Uh, we've put very significant effort into larger numbers of rotating training and troops and, and equipment in the region. In addition, as I mentioned in my opening statement, we've taken, I think our expenditure last year was about 700 some million or something. We're taking it up to 3.4, 3.5 billion uh, in assistance uh, to the frontline states and in order to make it very, very clear that uh, we're there and to support Ukraine in addition to that. Uh, we've, uh, I forget, very significant amount that it's also uh, gone in. It's about a billion six, I think it is. Um, so we are uh, making it very clear that we're there to help. Now, the, the weaponization issue is a, is a serious uh, one. I think that we've seen the dial get turned up and turned down, I might add, not only by Russia. And so, again, in classified session, I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit. But I think that... Uh, uh, it is imperative for us, as I said earlier, to be prepared to do more with respect to helping Europe to be able to withstand this onslaught. Uh, this is, you, you, you really can't overstate the uh, impact politically of the potential of another million refugees. Uh, and 
Do you think Europe can take another million? No, I, I think it is not doable, and I think we have to. Uh, I, I think that would have profoundly negative, dramatic. I know you also heard people in, in Munich just last week, excuse me, talk about <clears throat> the growing refugee crisis from the sub-Saharan area as well, and uh, the crisis in Egypt right now, and uh, that's well, the- fifty percent of the fifty percent of the people going in are not from Syria. Mm -hmm. They're coming from Bangladesh, they're coming from Pakistan, Afghanistan, they're coming from Africa. So it, it, it's a major challenge to the very uh, nature of the European Union. Well, some of us visited Serbia, and about 60% coming through that pipeline are male, young male, under 35, and only about 17% women, and the balance 20% or so uh, were children. Uh, and a good number of those were from Afghanistan coming right. through the Greece and, and Macedonia right. pipeline. Right. Let me ask one other quick question. I'm about out of time, but I'd like to go back to North Korea. Um, Director of National in Intelligence Clapper just this, this year commented that, uh, and I'll quote this, Pyongyang's uh, export of ballistic missiles and associated materials to several countries, including Iran and Syria, and its assistance to Syrians' construction of a nuclear reactor illustrate North Korea's willingness to proliferate dangerous te technologies. We know in six, 2006, 2009, 2013 that Iranian officials reportedly participated and were there during those nuclear tests. Do you have anything you can tell us about what the State Department is doing and the administration is doing to monitor that cooperation and any potential violations of the JCPOA in terms of nuclear proliferation between those two countries? Yeah, uh, at this point in time, uh, we, we do not assess that there is um, a violation, but we have in place restrictions under the UN Security Council resolutions to be able to act if there are. Um, the uh, Director Clapper is on target, and he's accurate, and we agree with that assessment, uh, and we're working very closely to address that. We, I think, we're on the verge of having an agreement, hopefully, with China. In fact, I'm meeting with the Chinese foreign minister this afternoon. Um, we are very hopeful that we, we know we've made progress in the negotiation in New York in coming up with a substantial and, and uh, improved UN Security Council resolution with respect to what we would do, uh, what we will do as a result of these activities. So uh, we're taking both national steps and, and multilateral steps. We have entered the conversations with uh, South Korea uh, on the THAAD missile deployment, THAAD defensive system right. deployment. And, um, you know, we obviously have other options uh, available to us, but, uh, you know, this does not interfere with the JCPOA, it's separate from it, but we are nevertheless gonna take these actions. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and, I, and uh, Secretary Kerry, me, Kerry. Let me echo what others uh, uh, have said about your, your excellent service around the country and all you're doing to try to uh, bring peace to many of these uh, difficult regions. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Roberta Jacobson in your opening, and I think uh, uh, other senators have mentioned her here. I, I've worked with her extensively. I think she's a very capable career. Uh, State Department person. She, uh, uh, you know, as you said, she doesn't make the policy about Cuba. Uh, and so if you're objecting to the policy, uh, it doesn't make any sense to, to 
uh, hold up her nomination. And, and uh, I went down last week to the Senate floor to offer uh, her name and consent, and it was objected to. Uh, and I can just tell you, um, this is an area that she's, she's nominated for Mexico to be the ambassador to Mexico. This has a real impact on my state. Uh, the state of New Mexico borders with Mexico. We have dramatic trade that's going on from, uh, in the last 15 years, it started at about 7.5 million. Now it's up to about uh, 1.2 billion. Uh, we have all sorts of cooperative kinds of things we work with uh, Mexico on at the state level. Um, and so uh, uh, I'm just wondering from your perspective, what is the impact of not having an ambassador to Mexico uh, and recognizing that we've had, uh, Secretary Kerry, this has been vacant for six months, and this is one of our, our very, very strong trading partners. Could you speak to that? Well, Senator, thank you, and thank you for your support for that effort. Look, everybody here knows you all interact with our ambassadors when you go over to these other countries. Um, they spend a lifetime of service to our country, uh, gaining skills over 20 and 30 years. Uh, and there's a reason we send them to the countries we send them to. It's because they are particularly suited to helping us to advance America's interests to build the relationship, to help to uh, explain our values and choices. But in this world right now, particularly, notwithstanding uh, instant communication and email and the way in which we can communicate directly, foreign minister to foreign minister, having an ambassador on the ground who builds relationships, who knows the people in the government, who, acts, who, who understands their difficulties, who has a sense of the politics of that particular country, helps us to be able to get our policy implemented. And here we are. We just had a North American security dialogue in Canada the other day with the foreign minister of Mexico, the foreign minister of Canada, and myself. We have a huge North American interest. We have energy challenges. We have border challenges. We have uh, narcotics trafficking. We have violence. We have uh, the challenge of Mexico's help to help us prevent the flow of those children coming out of Honduras, Guatemala, and Salvador coming up through Mexico into the United States last year, and so forth. I mean, you can run a long list, counterterrorism. Uh, the, the needs we have on a daily basis to have our nation properly represented by an ambassador uh, is absolutely critical. And we're just hurting ourselves, and we make ourselves look silly, frankly. It, it, and, and we insult the country that doesn't get the person. They're sitting there saying, what, what, do you, what is this, punishment for something we did or didn't do? And they don't act, sort of understand the, this process. So, uh, you know, I, I spent years and years up here, as you all know, and we usually got to the point where we could have a vote. Not one senator or two senators or rolling holds between three senators preventing the country from doing what the country needs to do. And I would hope that we just have a vote and, and let the democracy decide whether or not the Senate's will will say that Roberta Jacobson should go to, the, go to Mexico and help us with all these issues. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. And I, I, uh, I would applaud Senator Corker. He has tried to move these nominees forward. And what has ended up happening is they get 
bogged down on the floor. And, and uh, I'd like to shift to another area that you uh, just mentioned because it's an area that we also work uh, with Mexico on, and that's the just vexing and problematic situation in Central America. Um, this is having a, an impact on my state of New Mexico because we have many unaccompanied minors uh, who are uh, staying at Holloman Air Force Base. Uh, and the real uh, central question here is how are, how are we with these uh, three countries in Central America that are uh, drug, you have drug-fueled violence, you have corrupt governments, you have uh, very weak governments, um, and how are we going to uh, move ourselves in a better situation so that migration doesn't happen? That's, that's what um, I, I'm very concerned about. And we, in this budget deal, as you're very aware, um, helped uh, significantly in terms of State Department funding uh, for Central America and for these, uh, for these three countries. So I... Um, I'd like you to discuss any progress that has been made to date with respect to implementing the U.S. strategy for engagement in Central America. Uh, has there been any change in migration patterns that could be attributed to this effort of, of uh, which we're undertaking? Uh, would the funding requested for 2017 be used differently from previously appropriated funds for the region? And uh, how long do you think we're going to have to work on this to really make an impact? Well, we're going to have to work for a fair number of years, Senator, as you recall, uh, we just were able to celebrate the 15 years of Plan Columbia. And I remember in this room when we passed Plan Columbia, a billion dollars, and a lot of people were, you know, wondering for one country over a 10-year period what that was going to do. I think it, it saved the country together with the country's commitment itself and its leaders to try to stand up to the narco traffickers who back then were destroying the nation. And today, Colombia is one of the strongest countries in all of Latin America and doing an amazing job in many, many respects. So these investments are critical, and that is what the administration has decided to do and is doing with respect to uh, a number of countries, uh, not just Salvador, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, uh, but also Belize and Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama. We're working with all of them to try to address the causes of these folks uh, sending their kids into danger and trying to come into the United States. And it has to do with violence, violence against young people, has to do with narcotics trafficking, has to do with lack of opportunity, education, health, and, and other ingredients. So. Uh, we have found that what really does make a difference is to help these countries to be able to help themselves, and that helps us. So we're engaged in a major effort to try to professionalize the law enforcement, uh, to reduce the illicit trafficking, to reduce the, tra the, the smuggling, the transnational organized crime, the gangs, and I think we have uh, $750 million we've asked for uh, it's, it's a down payment on the full billion plus that we want to put into this. Uh, and 359 million of that is for bilateral assistance and 390 million is regional assistance for the things that I've just talked about. I'm convinced if we follow through on that, this is going to reduce the numbers of people trying to come to the United States across the border and it will significantly um, in the long term, strengthen those countries and our relationships with them. Thank you.
Thank you. Senator Paul. Thank you for your testimony. I continue to believe that uh, one of the greatest threats our country faces is the accumulation of debt. We borrow about a million dollars a minute. We've given away over $300 billion in foreign aid over the last 10 years. During those 10 years, we've accumulated over $10 trillion in debt. Now, some would say, well, it's only 1% of the budget. It's not a big deal. Actually, if you cut 1% of the budget each year over about a five-year period, you actually balance your budget within five years. So the savings does add up. The other thing I think in thinking about this is, is that most of us give privately to charities or to our church, and uh, most of us would think it would be absurd to borrow money, go to the bank, borrow money to give to your church. You give out of your surplus or out of your earnings, but you don't give out of borrowed money. And I think it's equally absurd for a country to borrow money from China to send to Pakistan. It sort of uh, defies any common sense. The other argument, though, is whether or not it actually works, whether the money, if you say, well, gosh, it's still it's so valuable and we borrowed this money and we're going further into debt, but it works. But there's quite a bit of evidence that maybe it doesn't work. You know, we've plowed a trillion dollars into Iraq, and Iraq has treated their liberation that we granted them with uh, falling into the arms of Iran. You know, you, you could make the argument they're closer allies with Iran than they are with us. They don't seem to do what we ask them to do with regard to making their army more national and le less sectarian. Uh, they brought some of the Sunni uprising upon themselves against our wishes. In Egypt, over the last 10 years, we've given them $60 billion. Some estimate as much as half of that was stolen by the Mubarak family. Even liberal institutions such as the New York Times has reported as much as 50 to 70% of foreign aid is stolen. Chairman Corker has mentioned the duplicitous nature of Pakistan, who I think at best can be described as a frenemy, sometimes friend, sometimes enemy, but really duplicitous is probably the best way to put it. They've, we've given them $15 billion over the last 10 years. I don't think I'll convince you, but I think the American people are convinced that uh, we don't have the money to be sending money all around the world when our infrastructure here is falling down, our country is struggling. We just simply don't have the money and it makes no sense to borrow it. I don't think I'll convince you on any of those points, so I'd rather ask you a specific question about Syria. Um, do you think it would make any difference if instead of demanding as a precondition uh, Assad leaving, that the, if the demand were something more like an internationally monitored election within a certain period of time, is that something that's already been offered up as a possibility? And what is your best guess as to whether Russia or Syria might treat that as more of a possibility of a starting point if it were a, an election at some sort of predetermined date? Well, Senator, uh, thanks for your comment on the general issue of aid. I, I would like to come back to it just for a moment, but let me answer your specific question. Uh, Russia and um, Iran have accepted the idea of an internationally monitored, uh, highest standard election in which even the diaspora can vote. So they are already there. Um, and that is, in fact, part of the uh, laydown in the United Nations Security Council and in the agreement. The problem is that uh, the opposition uh, will not accept the idea of Assad running in an election because they believe that that, you know, they just don't have confidence it'll Can be Can I make one quick interjection there? The opposition's gonna have to accept something. Assad's not, with, with Russia's backing, Assad's not going anywhere. He has the upper hand now. So, you know, we're the ones supplying the opposition. We need to tell them they're gonna have to accept something. Well, we'll see. A negotiated settlement of a war 
requires compromise by everybody. And uh, the opposition is already compromised in significant ways to uh, come to the table. But if you can't end the war with Assad running, is it really worth destroying an entire country and a region over one man who simply thinks his being there is more important than anything else? And the question is whether or not, in the course of this process, uh, people will come to their senses and understand, you know, uh, I mean, four words could end this war. I will not run. You could immediately move to uh, resolve all of the other issues in a very significant way. So I think, you know, the opposition and everybody believes Assad cannot unite the country. It just can't end the war. I've said this earlier. Yeah, no, but don't you think the opposition's position is greatly weakened over the last year and that they can't, they really don't have the strength? They're one of 1,500 groups. The, you know, the opposition we support won't exist without our support, basically. They're being overrun as we speak, you well, know, in, in the, the areas north of Aleppo. Well, the opposition fiercely. The opposition has fought fiercely, and they continue to fight, and they continue to push back against uh, uh, the odds of uh, aircraft bombing them and so forth. And I think that uh, President Putin has to understand what everybody in the region understands, which is that this war can't end. If Russia wants to sit there and fight the jihadis, and uh, you know, they, that, that can be obviously their choice. I don't think that's what they want to do. But I think if you were to think about it, the, the whole disaster of this war and the mass migration and the killing and all that's gone on, if, if you could accept the end to the war with an election in a year and Assad might or might not run in a year, that to me is a, is a victory to end the war. I mean, sure, he's a terrible guy. The Middle East full of them, you know? Uh, half the countries over there have despots, you know? So, uh, you know, uh, the thing is, is that I don't have any love lost for him, but there's also two million Christians that would choose Assad over the opposition probably. You know, so the thing is, is that I think if you could negotiate something that negotiating is giving. If our position and the rest of the world's position is that Assad has to go, you've seen where it's going. Yeah, it isn't going anywhere. See, the United States can't impose on people who have lived there under these bombs and starvation and torture. You can't impose on them uh, the notion that they have to live with a guy who did all these things to them. That's the fight. And we don't have the ability, uh, nor should we, impose on them. This has to be a Syrian-resolved process. But they only exist with our support. Uh, I don't think so. I think that uh, they would exist otherwise. They uh, exist in a greater degree. But we didn't, you know, we didn't create them out of whole cloth. This revolution in Syria began when Assad attacked young kids who went out into the square to demonstrate for jobs and for a future. And when their parents went out, he attacked them. And that was the beginning of this. And everybody knows it. So um, we are where we are, and we have to try and find it. Let me come back to the, uh, just the point you made. You know, we're not, we wouldn't disagree on everything you said, because <clears throat> there are places where money has been stolen. There are places where it hasn't been well spent. And our job is obviously always to find out why that's happened and, not, and to prevent it from ever happening again. Uh, but all in all, uh, if you look at the vast majority of countries that we are engaged with and the nature of the world today, Senator, 
uh, I just have to tell you that if we weren't doing the development work we're doing, if we weren't helping kids to get educated, if we weren't providing uh, some support for the development of healthcare capacity, apart from the humanitarian notion of that, there is enormous developmental return on that investment. And for the United States, I'm convinced more than ever. I mean, I've seen this now for the three years plus I've been secretary. It makes a difference, a huge difference to the standards of behavior, to the values that those people adopt, to the uh, willingness of countries to join together, to fight Ebola, to deal with AIDS, to uh, fight but back. I, but I guess you could terrorism. also make the argument that our support for someone like Mubarak leads to a reaction of anti-Americanism. There Egypt. have always when they, been. When they, see, when they see tear gas shells made in Pennsylvania that we buy, that he suppresses his crowds with, you can see that the reaction isn't always a pleasant one for America. That's, that's correct. And there have always been imbalances and uh, difficulties in some of the choices that we have made. I don't disagree with you about Iraq. There are a lot of problems in Iraq. But right now, we have a challenge, which is to try to save Iraq and have, help Iraq to save itself from Daesh. Uh, and it's in everybody's interest. Every country in the region wants to destroy Daesh. So we need to do that. I think there are a lot of ways. We are still the richest country in the world. We still have the strongest economy in the world, and we will for some years to come. And. Um, hopefully forever, but certainly as we see a rising China, there's a time when automatically, by virtue of size and people, its economy will be larger. Whether it's stronger is a different question. But I would say to you that, uh, uh, that we have uh, a huge imperative here to remain deeply engaged, because if we don't, uh, there are too many young people out there, too many countries with a population under the age of 30 to 35, where you have 60 and 70 percent of the country under that age. And if they don't get educated, and if they don't get uh, job opportunities in this world in which everybody's connected and knows what everybody has and doesn't have, then I fear the evil that will fill their heads and the way in which they could get co-opted into enterprises and efforts that are very, very dangerous for all of us. And so we all have a responsibility here to see that and to try to do something about it, because that is a national security threat to the United States of America, as well as all of our friends and allies. Senator Murphy, if, if, is there a timer on your side of the? Uh, I don't know. I have a if the if the former chairman would help the current chairman when it gets towards the end of the time have less expansive answers. I'd be delighted because right, I have another you. meeting right. too. Senator Murphy, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, <laughs> Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'll try to do my part uh, as well. Um, uh, just quickly, one one thought on this analogy that Senator Paul was making uh, regarding uh, how a family may not. Uh, borrow money in order to make a charitable contribution to their church. I, I think for a lot of us, that's not what we view. These um, investments in foreign aid, we view them as uh, integral to our national security policy as the investments that we're making in the submarines and the jet engines and the helicopters that we produce in Connecticut. So this is not something we are doing out of goodwill. This is part and parcel of a broader se national security strategy. Um, second, um, the overview that you began with, the, the U.S. and the State Department engaged in more places in the world than ever before, squares with 
the reality that a lot of people believe exists, which is a world that is more chaotic than ever before. Um, the truth of the matter is, as you've pointed out, is that the number of people across the world who are dying from acts of violence, who are dying as the result of war, is actually declining, has been declining for a long time. Um, and it speaks to our ability to find ways out of conflicts other than war, um, something we haven't been so good at in the past that we're much better at today. Uh, and so I, I just say that as a means of congratulating you um, on a number of seminal diplomatic achievements that are important in and of themselves, the text uh, in the agreements, whether it be the Iran nuclear agreement, the climate change agreement, or this ceasefire. Um, but they also remind people all around the world um, of the gains that have been achieved, the lives that have been saved, uh, because we figured out over time that as important it is to have strong militaries, it's much more important to take chances, to take risks on diplomacy. More of them pan out than don't pan out. Um, which brings me to a question. You've got in this budget a, I think, a near doubling of funding for CVE, for countering violent extremism. Um, that's a smart investment. I know you'd want to spend more if you could, uh, because we're cutting off the roots of extremism before it gets to the branches. Um, smart strategy. But here's my worry. Uh, my worry is that the impact of these funding increases uh, are going to be blotted out by the advantage that accrues to extremist groups, troops by virtue of this widening proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the region. And it's certainly playing out to an extent in Syria. Um, but I want to ask you about our policy in Yemen today. Um, there's a BBC story today that says Yemen conflict, colon, al-Qaeda, joins coalition battle for Taiz. And, and the underlying analysis is that increasingly there's some pretty deep integration between elements of Al-Qaeda and elements of the coalition, a coalition that does include the United States, not on the ground, but in terms of the support that we've given for the Saudi air campaign. Um, and as, 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 as I read the conflict in Yemen, I have a hard time figuring out what the US national security interests are, given the fact uh, that the result of the coalition campaign has been to kill a lot of civilians, uh, has been to sow the seeds of humanitarian uh, crisis, and to create space for these groups, these very extremist groups that we claim to be our priority in the region to grow, whether it be ISIS or uh, Al-Qaeda uh, in Yemen. Um, so, um, I just wanted to uh, ask about the, the future of the U.S. involvement on the Saudi side of this conflict in Yemen, um, and to just talk to us about why we should continue to fund um, munitions requests from the Saudi government that end up uh, in that fight. Well, uh, Senator, uh, good question, and um, the answer is, is very straightforward. that. Um, we are, the Saudis are part of our coalition, part of our uh, GCC link to pushing back against nefarious activities in the region. And the Saudis were threatened very, very directly by the combination of the Houthi and some Iranian input. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, felt they had to defend themselves and we supported their right to do that. Now, we are urging them very strongly to get into, uh, to get to the table and to negotiate uh, a resolution to this. And we believe that there is a certain ripeness to that. 
uh, and it would be better for everybody if we were able to achieve that. Now, there's some complications with it, obviously. Uh, you have uh, former President Saleh, who has uh, made life difficult in this whole process. Um, and uh, our hope is that we've wor we we're working with the Omanis, with the Saudis, uh, and with the Emiratis and other friends in the region to try to see if we can't now uh, get back to the table. The UN is engaged, as you know. There's supposed to be talks that are going to take place shortly. And our hope is that this, this can end. A lot of civilians have, unfortunately, been, uh, uh, the, uh, been impacted uh, as a consequence of what's been going on. Uh, and I, I think the heart, the heart of the matter is that uh, we, are, we are urging uh, diplomacy at this moment to try to see if we can't bring this to a close. And I think it would be to everybody's interest if that were to happen. It would also um, provide a capacity to be able to focus more on Daesh and to get the forces that are there that have been distracted from the Daesh effort realigned and refocused. I think at the root of your answer is that uh, the alliance between the United States and Saudi Arabia requires us to come to their aid when they feel threatened. And I guess my pitch is that um, I hope that that would not be um, the default proposition if this uh, proxy war widens in the region. Um, I think it frankly provides incentive and impetus for the proxy war to widen if the Saudis know that wherever they go, the U.S. is very close behind. And the more we're instability not, that, this proxy, war, that no. this proxy war seeds, the more room there is for these groups to, to grow. There's a distinction between uh, a proxy war, as you describe it, and the threat that the Saudis faced uh, as a consequence of what was happening right on their neighborhood, right on their border, and across their border. So we chose to support that. We would not be supporting a longer sort of proxy kind of effort, and that's one of the reasons why I say to you we think it's important now to get to the table and negotiate. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Brasso. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, nice to see you again. Um, the American people are facing significant issues here at home, uh, tight budgetary environment, and you're requesting $1.3 billion for the Global Climate Change Initiative. As legislators, we're constantly searching to find the resources to help um, many people around the country, communities who are dealing with unemployment, with aging water systems, with poor roads, substandard hospitals, failing schools. So how, how do we talk to people at home and say that the real priority of the administration is sending 1.3 billion taxpayer dollars overseas to international bureaucrats in the name of climate change um, rather than dealing with these issues at home? Uh, very simple answer. Uh, the American people are extremely practical, uh, enormous common sense about things that affect them. You pick up the newspaper today and you read about the flooding that people are suffering as a result of directly as a result of climate change, that flooding costs those taxpayers money. We spent billions of dollars last year. I forget what the, uh, it was, uh, uh, $8 billion, I think, in reaction to storms in the United States, which are of greater intensity as a result, according to the scientists, of the impacts of climate change. So well, Barbara Boxer, a member of this committee, would agree with that, but then I'm saying, why aren't we spending the money here? She says uh, 
Climate change is an issue relating to wildfire and drought, storms, and so it's $1.3 well, billion we are protecting. We are spending some. And the yeah. question is, why aren't we spending it here rather than sending it overseas to bureaucrats? Because there are 20 major nations in the world that account for about, uh, you know, the vast majority of the, uh, the majority, put it that way, because the less developed countries are now growing in their emissions as a result of their own developing practices. But the result is, if we don't help some of these countries that have no money, that are burning coal without any kind of restraint on how they burn it, uh, we regrettably are gonna also suffer. So it's in our self-interest to help these countries to make better choices about what their energy future is gonna be. It also, by the way, opens up jobs for Americans because we are the most uh, advanced with respect to most of those uh, energy technologies. So we could be actually creating more jobs for Americans as a result of getting countries to invest more thoughtfully in their energy future, but they can't afford to do it on their own. So what we're doing is actually helping people to make a transition to a clean energy future, which is good for everybody. This is gonna be, there'll be $50 trillion, Senator, spent on the whole gamut of energy choices in the next 20, 30 years. That's jobs for people all over the world. This is gonna be the single biggest market the world has ever seen. And, and so uh, I think this is a, uh, you know, this is uh, an extremely smart investment in our security as well as in, 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 in our economy. And I think when Americans uh, are presented that choice, Americans, in fact, they already are, overwhelmingly in support of our doing something about climate change. Uh, during your confirmation, I want to switch to Syria here. During the confirmation hearing, January 2013, you were asked about the situation in Syria. You stated, every day that goes by, it gets worse. Uh, I specifically asked you about Putin's support of Assad in Syria. At the time of your confirmation hearing, there were more than 60,000 individuals estimated to have been killed uh, in the crisis in Syria. Uh, the estimate this past weekend, is that it's now up to 470,000 Syrians killed in the crisis of Syria. So that's since the day of your confirmation hearings to now, and that was the numbers were in The Economist and the, national, and the international surveys on this, that's about 300 more killed every day over the last three years. So Russia continues to support the Assad regime. It's now bombing civilians and opposition groups in Syria. Uh, Putin's attempting to change the battlefield dynamics to bolster the Assad regime, to weaken the opposition uh, in terms of, of anything related to peace. He's, his support of the Assad regime includes bombing civilians, bombing opposition groups. The current edition of The Economist article is titled, Vladimir Putin's War in Syria, Why Would He Stop Now? Uh, it says both of Aleppo's main hospitals were systematically destroyed by Russian airstrikes last year. They said nobody should be surprised that despite signing the agreement, Russia would continue its airstrikes against those in, it regards as terrorists, which they then point out is an elastic term for, uh, for, uh, for Putin. Today's New York Times editorial, relying again on an unreliable Mr. Putin, he says Putin, a ceasefire to him is a tactic, even a smokescreen, not a goal. The Economist says the only puzzle is what John Kerry, America's Secretary of State, thought he could achieve through his agreement with Mr. Lavrov. So I would say after decimating opponents of the Assad regime with, the, with its bombing, Russia has now made a joint statement with the U.S. Uh, that it will agree to a cessation of 
hostilities February 27th. I mean, to me, the only thing Russia has been consistent with is failing to keep its word. What consequences, specifically what consequences do you support imposing upon Russia if it violates the ceasefire agreement and it is just a smokescreen or a, 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 some kind of a, a charade? Well, uh, in answer to the question, what does John Kerry think he could achieve? Uh, and the consequences for Russia if they do violate. Right. My job, uh, the job of everybody in the State Department, is to try to, you know, war is the absence of failure of diplomacy. And our job is to try to see if there is a way to bring this uh, to an end. Uh, I can't, I'm not sitting here naively vouching for the fact that this is going to work. But the alternative is that I sit in my office and I go visit a bunch of countries while the war rages on and nobody makes an effort to stop it. That's the alternative. You'd be criticizing me if I was doing that. You'd say, why aren't you doing something to end the war? Why isn't there a diplomacy to try to find a solution? Now, it is a well-known fact that I have also advocated for strong uh, efforts to support the opposition, strong efforts to make sure we have the leverage that we need to be able to achieve something. And, and there is a significant discussion taking place now about plan B in the event that we don't succeed at the table. So look, put yourself in President Putin's shoes. Yeah, he can drop bombs and he can move the battlefield and he can, and he has changed it for Assad, no question about it. He has had a better impact for Assad. But is that going to end the war? The answer is no. And I think President Putin is smart enough to understand that if he just sits there over a period of time, those people who have supported the opposition will get different weapons, more weapons, and they will continue this fight. And you can wind up with a Syria that is utterly destroyed without a capacity to put it back together again, which we have today. You know, that's happened before. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote about Carthage, you know. They made a desert and called it peace. So you can make a desert in the desert and, and call it what you want. But I'm telling you, this war will not end with Assad there. It just won't end as long as Assad is there. So President Putin can bring in more. He can, you know, start uh, additional bombing. But I assure you that because of the sectarian nature of this, if he thinks he's going to be better off fighting on behalf of a dictator who has driven most of his people out of the country or into refugee status, killed a bunch of them, if he thinks he's going to be better off with uh, uh, supporting Hezbollah, and the IRGC and Iran and Assad against an increasingly sectarian uh, divide that is defined by Shia and Sunni, uh, that is a very, very dangerous uh, I'm over my time, Mr. Secretary, but it does seem that there are no consequences for Putin's violation of the ceasefire. And I've not heard one from you with regard to this administration. Well, there are a number of things being talked about right now. I don't think it's the moment to be throwing a lot of you know, I, I think that it's out there and people know what they are, but I think this is a moment to try to see whether or not we can make this work, not to find ways to 
preordain its failure and start talking about all the downsides of what we're going to do afterwards. Because uh, UN, UN, UN Ambassador Samantha Power, you know, this past year talked about all of the, the failures of Russia to, uh, or the violations of Russia with ceasefires in Ukraine. It just seems to be we're seeing this uh, picture again. Well, let's see if we do, and then let's see what plan B is or isn't, if that's what it takes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Before going to Senator Kane, I, I, I've had terse words with the Secretary in, in public before, and it's not my job to, to certainly today to defend him, and I'm not, I, I think ever since August, September of 2013, when we did not take the actions that this committee authorized uh, against Syria, Russia and others have known we're not going to do those things to cause there to be a price. And I think that the Secretary is negotiating a situation where there is no Plan B. Russia knows there'll be no Plan B. And so in spite of his energetic efforts, um, unless the other side knows that there will be consequences, we know there's not going to be under this President. Secretary Kerry probably knows they're not going to be under this. Senator, let me, let me just and, say. And I, Russia I knows that there's not going to be any consequences, and, and that's what makes it difficult, I think. That would be, actually, Senator, I appreciate, honestly, I appreciate your comments, and, and, but it would be a mistake for anybody to calculate that President Obama isn't going to decide that if this doesn't work, there isn't, aren't another set of options. I, I just don't buy that. And I don't think, and I think anybody who, who presumes that is misjudging this president and his record of making tough decisions and doing what's necessary. The president's first choice is to try to see if this can be resolved diplomatically. It's my first choice. It's the first choice of the security team. But there are plenty of people who are thinking about, okay, if it doesn't work, then what? Including the president of the United States who has the responsibility to make that choice. But anybody who thinks that there is impunity for just violating this and going forward is making a grave mistake, in my judgment. We've been thinking about it for two and a half years. Senator Kane. Thank you. And, and I'm, I'm going to save, I'm way late for a meeting I was supposed to be at. I'm going to save my questions for the budget committee uh, hearing that we're, we're going to have in subcommittee next week. I, let me just offer a statement to you, Mr. Secretary. As a member of this committee, but really just as a citizen, we owe you a huge debt of thanks. Um, you played a part as a senator, you have played a major part in unfreezing three frozen relationships that the United States has had bilaterally. As a senator, working with Senator McCain, you unfroze a very painful relationship between the United States and Vietnam. And there was controversy associated with it, and it could have failed, there was no guarantee it would work. But you played a major leadership role in doing that. And now as Secretary of State, you've played a major leadership role in taking two other relationships that the United States has had that have been frozen with Iran and with Cuba and putting them into a new chapter. And again, there's no guarantee that diplomacy works, but I think our experience shows that there is a guarantee that the lack of engagement fails. It will be a long time before we'll know the outcome of, of Cuba and Iran and the work that you've done diplomatically, just like it took a number of years for us to realize a path forward with Vietnam where they're now begging us to be their security partner, begging us to be their trade partner. That wasn't obvious when you did what you did back in the early 1990s, and yet that has the 
that's, it's been a path of progress where even though we still have challenges with Vietnam, nobody wants to go backward and go back to a frozen relationship. I'm not a historian, but if I think about what I know of American diplomacy, I mean, there have been achievements. The Roosevelt brokering of the end of the Russo-Japanese War, that was an achievement. Truman and Marshall and the Marshall Plan, that was an achievement. The Nixon opening to China, that was an achievement. The Northern Ireland Accords, that was an achievement. But I think the work that you've done on these three very tough, historically problematic and challenging relationships, working with others, Senator McCain, and, and with the strong encouragement of a President Obama who cares about diplomacy, thank goodness, I think it just, you know, it, it will rank in the very top ranks of American diplomatic achievements. And again, no guarantees of success, but the absence of diplomatic effort is almost a guarantee of failure. And I just want to thank you for that, and I'll save my budget questions for next week. Thank you very much. Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and Mr. Secretary, thank you. I don't have um, as broad a perspective to provide thanks to you as Senator Kane did, but certainly appreciate your tireless efforts to um, promote American values around the world. I actually want to bring it back to a minute matter as opposed to a broad strategy. And as um, I think you have been very supportive of the Special Immigrant Visa Program, which has been designed to help those people who helped us on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think you may be aware that Senator McCain and Senator Reid from the Armed Services Committee and I sent you and Secretary Johnson a letter two weeks ago um, asking you to reconsider the department's initial interpretation of the language from last year's um, defense authorization bill um, because I believe the department's initial reading of that language was inconsistent with what our intent was when we passed that bill, um, that we um, have disqualified many Afghan applicants who really work to serve this country and should not be disqualified because they face serious threats if they are disqualified. So I would just, I don't know if you have any update on where the department is on this, but I would urge you to, to take a hard look and reconsider the initial interpretation. Well, we couldn't agree with you more, Senator, and thank you for your ongoing concern about this. We share that concern. We do not want people who had, uh, uh, who had already expressed or received chief of mission approval to be before September of last year to suddenly be caught up in this change inadvertently, that would be grossly unfair and dangerous, obviously. So two things. Uh, one, we are reviewing it in, our, uh, in the legal department, and, and we're trying to see whether or not, in fact, the law can be interpreted in a way that we can just make it happen appropriately. Uh, that as an answer. If that didn't work or doesn't work, then we're going to work with you very clearly to quickly legislate a change that remedies this inadvertent uh, problem. But it's, uh, I agree with you. We just don't want people treated that way, and, and it would be a, a, a gross miscarriage of, uh, uh, you know, justice if that happened. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, to stay on the subject of immigration, um, one of the things, I think one of the most horrible outcomes of the civil war in Syria has been the refugee crisis that has been created 
uh, by that and the implications not just for Syria, for the Middle East, for so many of our allies, for Europe. Um, and they have highlighted a growing refugee crisis around the world that is getting worse, not getting better. And I was surprised to see that the budget reduces the migration and refugee assistance and the international disaster assistance accounts in the budget. And I just, given the crisis that we're facing, it's hard for me to understand the rationale for that. So can you speak to that? Well, I think we, we feel as if we, we have, first of all, uh, some money in the pipeline. But secondly, I think uh, we don't have a way of predicting exactly what the demand is going to be. We just committed another $925 million uh, to deal directly with the refugee crisis. I think 600 and some million directly for aid and then another, uh, the difference would be for education and relocation and so forth. But I, you know, our sense is that if we don't have enough, we're obviously going to have to come back and uh, discuss that with you. But I think in the OCO, we have an ability to be able to have some flexibility. Um, well, since you mentioned and that's one of the reasons, you know, <laughs> it's a it's a double-edged sword. We don't like OCO because it keeps right. cutting away at the budget baseline, and I agree with that. On the other hand, it gives us uh, some flexibility to be able to respond to these kinds of crises, and there have been more of them, which is why OCO has sort of evolved the way it has. Um, and I appreciate that, but I would put me in the column with Senators Cardin and Corker that says that's not the way we ought to be solving our budget problems. Um, let me go to the EU, because I'm, I mentioned the threat that has been posed by the Syrian refugees to um, the EU's union. Um, it's obviously facing probably more threats than at any time since World War II. Uh, given Russian aggression in Ukraine and other countries on the eastern border of the EU, um, given the threat from further terrorist attacks, um, the potential exit of uh, the UK from the European Union. So can you talk a little bit about um, how we're trying to respond to some of those challenges and how this budget strengthens our ability to do that and what more we can do to support Europe? Well, uh, the first thing we've done most recently was agree to work with them on the NATO, uh, you know, uh, deployment in order to try to prevent the flow of refugees coming across the sea to Greece. And we are talking with them now about what further extensions of the European border may or may not be needed in an effort to deal with this. I think the, the president is even having some discussions about that today. Uh, we have, as I said earlier, plussed up our budget to all of the uh, you know, frontline states, and in many ways they are frontline with respect to this movement of refugees. Um, we, the, the most important thing we can do well, we, in addition to that, we just pledged the $925 million I talked about in London uh, for the refugees. But one of the things that has motivated our policy, Senator, has been this notion, you know, we're the world's largest donor. We're at $5.1 billion now, and this thing can keep on going, and we can keep writing a check, but we don't want to. What we'd rather do is try to push forward on this other front to see if we can't get 
uh, an end to the flow of refugees by the cessation of hostilities and a legitimate uh, diplomatic process. And, you know, while I've said again and again here, I'm not going to vouch for the fact that this work, we have to put it to the test. We have no alternative but to test this. With all the cynicism and all the doubts that each of us will carry to the table, we have to test it. And then we'll know if people aren't serious, then that gives you a whole different set of, uh, of uh, choices. But that will have the most profound effect of all on Europe. And it's the one way really to deal with uh, the, the issue in a, in a more uh, uh, lasting and, and effective way. Thank you. My time is up and you've been here long enough. But um, I just want to add as a postscript that I support the efforts to counter violent extremism that the State Department has undertaken. I think that's absolutely critical as we think about how we're going to um, fight back against terrorism and ISIS and other terrorist groups. I would hope that we are coordinating with the Department of Homeland Security, which has undertaken a new um, initiative around countering violent extremism. So uh, I just would hope that as the State Department is working on this issue that we're working with Homeland Security to make sure that it's a coordinated effort across government. Yeah, we're working very closely with them, hand Thank in hand. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cardin for closing. I just want to make a comment. I was listening to some of my com uh, colleagues' comment about U.S. involvement internationally. And when I first came to the Congress, we could not pass a foreign assistance bill. It was just not a popular thing to do. And today, I don't think we have any trouble at all, Mr. Secretary, uh, getting the, the political support for a $50 billion foreign ops appropriation bill based upon U.S. involvement globally. And that's a credit to involving leadership in our country to explain the importance of our power. We're the only country in the world that has the military might, and I agree with you. President Obama will use that military might when it's needed, but it should be a matter of last resort. And we have the universal values. These aren't American values. These are universal values that we're willing to get engaged internationally in order to promote. And we have the ability to accomplish some really good things for the world because we do get involved in those issues. So I just really wanted to underscore uh, your record and the Obama administration and what you've been able to do to advance the, the, the national security of America. And uh, we're proud to be your partners here. And I think you've had a good relationship and we've been able to get some things done together. And when we, when we work together, we get more done. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you. Let me just thank you. I, I thank you both. I mean, the committee uh, has been uh, just a terrific partner. And we really appreciate. And when we came up on the AMF, you were there. You, you've taken the lead. And I appreciate the chair and the ranking members' relationship. Thank you. Well, listen, we appreciate your indulgence. You've been here two and a half hours uh, on a bipartisan basis. People have extended their appreciation for your tremendous effort on behalf of our country. And uh, I know the details of the budget we'll get into more with staff. but. Uh, we appreciate your appearance today. We appreciate your work on behalf of our country, and I look forward to seeing you in the next setting. Thank, Thank you, sir. The meeting is adjourned, and if you would answer uh, uh, questions, uh, we're going to leave the record open to the close of business Thursday. We appreciate it. Uh, meeting's adjourned.